Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and I'm here to tell you there's gold in them, the radio shows. Auriferous adventures, that is to say, containing gold. You gotta love the thesaurus. From the Whistler, the Lux Radio Theater, with Humphrey Bogart and Walter Houston recreating their film roles in The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and stay tuned, kids, hop along, Cassidy. There's the prospect of black gold on Bright Star with Fred McMurray and Irene Dunn, precious metal of a different kind on Vic and Sade, plus Gunsmoke and Dragnet. So do yourself a favor. Sit back, ignore any lingering negative thoughts from last week, don't worry about the week that starts tomorrow, and set your imagination loose here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. The secret to a show having real staying power, whether it's a stage play, a movie, or a TV or radio series, is the writing. You might have a hit without a great script, but it won't be a hit for very long. Witness the radio series that centered on the man with the action-packed expense account. It lasted for more than a dozen years. It was one of the last two commercial network dramatic series to bite the dust, and great radio writing was at the heart of it. We're about to offer some proof. Now that we're familiar with the final episodes of the series, starring Mandel Kramer, and before we return to everybody's favorite, Bob Bailey, we're going to listen to some of the other actors who essayed the role. The very first one never appeared on the air. He was a movie star, he did the pilot for the program, and he helped establish some of the elements that lasted through the end of the 1940s, all of the 1950s, and into the 60s. There's the arch humor, the great narrative gimmick of the expense account, which was funnier in the early days of the show, as we'll hear, and above all, the confidence of the character, coupled with an adorable vulnerability. Of course, it was the writers who really put those elements in place. Gil Dowd, who went on to write for The Adventures of Sam Spade and Voyage of the Scarlet Queen on radio, and Paul Dudley, who just as Mr. Dowd, authored several screenplays and early TV series, including OSS and The Frank Sinatra Show. Here, then, is the very first embodiment of America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. It's Dick Powell on December 7, 1948, in the audition episode that mentions the popular bandleader Horace Height for a brand new series from CBS. It was called Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents a thrilling new adventure series starring Dick Powell. I'm an insurance investigator. My name is Johnny Dollar. What? You heard me, Johnny Dollar, and I can pad an expense account with the best of them. 
Yep, I'm a freelance insurance investigator, and I live in Hartford, Connecticut. At least that's where I pay rent. My work sees to it that I really live anywhere, except at home. I'm free, white, and 34, and so forth. If you're interested in buying me Christmas presents, I take a size 42 suit. Shirts 15 and a half collar, sleeve length 33. My hat size is 7 and 8, except when I wind up a successful case. Then it runs about 7 and 3 eighths. At insurance investigation, I'm just an expert. At making out my expense account, I'm an absolute genius. Expense account. Submitted by investigator Johnny Dollar. To Home Office, East Coast Underwriters, Terminal Building, Hartford, Connecticut. Attention, Austin Farnsworth, General Manager. The following is an accounting of my expenditures in the investigation of Milford Brooks III for your company. Expense account item one. Cab fare to your office in answer to your original call, 75 cents. Tip to driver, one dollar. Expense account item two. Shoe shine, 25 cents. You'll remember I got my shoes scuffed when I unsuspectingly walked into your private office. Milford! No, you must get out of my way, Dollar! Get him away from that window! Don't hey, you, you! Jump. Hey, hey, oh, no, 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 you don't! Let go of me! Let go of me! No, no, there are better ways of making a big splash in life. Get away! Well, nice try, Sonny. Now pay attention to teacher. Oh, I didn't know I had it in me. Oh, Oh, goodness gracious, Dollar. Did you have to hit him so hard? I hope you haven't killed him. He's too strong, you know. Uh, Don't worry. There. Now, now, Mr. Farnsworth, would you mind telling me on whose head have I the dubious pleasure to be sitting? That, sir, is Milford Brooks III. His policy with this company is in the amount of $2 million. Wow. Yes. And the boy seems bent on committing suicide. Dollar, I want you to stop him. Uh, what do you want me to do? Threaten him with death? Anything, anything. The conditions of his policy are such that we would be forced to meet with a claim in the event of his suicide. Oh, I say, Dollar, sitting on his head that way, aren't you in danger of smothering the boy? Smothering him doesn't worry me, but these crew haircuts don't make very comfortable cushions. I'll move down a little. Ah, now, there. Okay, okay. So far, I know this kid is insured for $2 million and that his policy pays off on suicide. What else? One half hour ago, Milford Brooks walked into this office and changed the beneficiary in his policy. Uh-huh. Then, sir, he proceeded to demand, not request, mind you, but demand a loan of $500,000. Quite a touch. When I explained to him that there were no provisions for a loan in his policy, he threatened suicide. Which would cost you $2 million. So all we have to do is keep him alive, huh? And he's managed to make that no small problem. His choice of a new beneficiary is downright frightening. One of the most notorious gamblers in the East. His name is Hatcher, uh, Harold Hatcher. Ouch. Oh, do you know him? Sure. That kid's been a post office pinup boy for a lot of years. Well, that's the situation. I'm engaging you to protect Milford Brooks' future. Dollar, I want you to protect the boy. Uh, give him something to live for. You know, an interest in life. An interest in life? Well, then let's, let's, uh, let's see. Um, oh, I know here. This should help. What's that you got there? Well, it's what's commonly referred to in the more successful of bachelor circles as my little black book. Oh. Well, now, let's, uh, let's see. Hmm? Hmm. Ruby? No, no. Her favorite expression is drop dead. Uh, Bernadine? Hmm, no. 
She'd be the new beneficiary by midnight. Oh, dear. Now, here, here. Here's the one. Butter. Say, Farnsworth, would you mind passing me that phone? The one with the long cord? Oh, no, no. I still, Buster. My little friend here is showing signs of life. Here, here you are. Maybe you should let him breathe a bit more. Ah, don't worry, don't worry. He'll be all right. Hello. Oh, hello. I want to call New York. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hudson, 24292. Dollar, you're not thinking of taking this boy to New York, are you? Well, I'm going there myself. You want me to keep an eye on him, don't you? Now, don't fret, Farnsworth. All is not lost. You do worry me, sitting on his chest that way. Hello? Hello, uh, Butter? Uh, this is Johnny. Yeah, I'll be in town tonight. I want to see you. And look, here's what I want you to do. Yes, yes, it's all right to say over the telephone. Yeah, I want you to reserve a table at the hatchery in my name for 10 o'clock tonight. Will you do that? Okay, I'll see you at your apartment in a few hours. But, honey, I can't make it any earlier. I'm sitting up on a sick friend. Okay, goodbye. I'm not sure that I agree with your methods. Huh? Ow! What's the matter? Uh, did he hit you? Hit me? He bit me. Expense account, item three. Liquor, $18. Keeping Milford Brooks III peaceful seemed to be the immediate problem. And a bottle of rare old brandy seemed to be the immediate answer. I poured most of it into him, and by the time he started to tick again, he'd gone through the unusual process of going to sleep sober and waking up enchanted. I loaded him into my car, and we headed for New York. As we passed through New Haven, he opened one eye, looked up, saw the Yale Bowl, and gave three cheers for old Eli. Ray, Ray. Uh, old Yale would sure be proud of you. Why anybody would want to insure you for $2 million is more than I can figure. My daddy loved me very much. And my mother loved me very much. Now, that's nice. And not only that, but I love somebody very much. And not only that, but I hate somebody very much. That's interesting. You know something? Next to one other guy, I hate you. More than anybody else. Oh, here, lover boy, it's a cocktail hour again. Time for your bottle. Rolling along the Merritt Parkway, I felt very much alone with my thoughts. And believe me, they weren't very pleasant company. The way it stacked up for me, Brooks had built up a fat gambling debt with Harold Hatcher and had been forced into making him his beneficiary. The suicide threat that he was holding over the insurance company was a little tougher to figure. Unless he was trying to finance a trip for himself to get away from the man with a murder motive, Hatcher. Hmm. My hungry little mind nibbled away on those unsavory morsels of food for thought all the way to Butter's apartment. Hey. Hey, where are you taking me? I want to go to New York. If you don't behave, Buster, I'll punch your ticket. Johnny, darling, welcome to New York. Well, that's the fastest trip I ever had. Quiet. Well, where did you find this? In a box of Cracker Jack. Let us in, dear. I don't know about you. Some men bring me flowers, some bring me candy. What do you bring me? A boiled owl in a Brooks Brothers suit. Pleased to reach you. Yeah, let's trot him into the bedroom, honey. He'd look more at home in the bathtub. I need to pull down the cup. All right. Now, come on, Buster. Lie down. Charm, charm, charm. 
Ah, that kid's liquor sure can hold him. How long have you been playing nursemaid to this bottle, baby? Get behind that bar, sweet, and I'll tell you all about it. Sure. Horrible examples don't seem to bother you, do they? If you knew how that guy has been bothering me. What did he do to you? Well, let's just say he put the bite on me. Oh, gosh, the river sure does look pretty tonight. Bourbon and soda? Now, please, anything but brandy. I've been sniffing that second hand all the way from Hartford. Butter, see that big boat out there? Mm-hmm. Oh, I sure would like to be on it with you, sailing off to faraway romantic places. Get with it, darling. That's the 125th Street Ferry. Oh. Here's your drink. Come on now. Tell Butter all about it. So friend Bourbon and I proceeded to tell her all about it. It wasn't easy. Everything about her kept flagging down my train of thought. The longer she looked at me, the less I wanted of Milford Brooks the third, and the more I wanted of beautiful Butter the first, and only. She was a sympathetic listener to my story until I gave her the answer to her first and only question. And where do I fit into all this? Well, baby, I thought you understood. My job is to give this poor misguided boy something to live for. That's you. Well... Mm. Now, honey, hold everything. Don't go getting your corn all popped. You, you misunderstand. I really mean it. I thought if he'd just got to look at you and realize that things like you exist, why, you'd make any man glad to be alive. Oh, oh come on now, Butter. Melt a little. I wouldn't let anything happen to you. You know that. Did I hurt you? Oh, no, I'm getting used to it. People have been taking pokes at me all day. I'm sorry. Ah, that's better. You want some more bourbon? Uh-uh. I want some more you. Well, help yourself. Honey, it's getting late. Let's uh, make this the last drink. Mm. What time is it? Oh, it's uh, it's uh, twenty to ten. Oh. My reservation at the hatchery is for ten. Here. Thanks. Cigarette? Oh, empty. Some more out in the other room. I'll get him. I'd love to get you on a slow boat to China. Johnny. Oh, coming. He's gone. What? Well, he can't be. But he is. The window's wide open. Oh, the fire escape. What a smart guy I am. Trading three drinks of bourbon for two million bucks on the hoof. Oh, that's the biggest bar check I ever picked up. That's a big bar check for anyone to pick up. As a matter of fact, it's a bigger bar check than you've ever heard of anyone picking up before. And that should give you an idea of what to expect in the second act as you follow this new CBS series starring Dick Powell in the title role, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Well, nobody could say I wasn't working fast. I'd only been in town for an hour and I'd already succeeded in losing Milford Brooks III. I spent another hour of his all-too-short life expectancy unsuccessfully shaking down the neighborhood for him. And then, feeling very much like a bloodhound that had flunked his sniffing exam, I went back to Butter's apartment. 
Johnny. Oh, sure. Plenty of luck. All bad. Is there anything I can do to help? I'll kiss for luck. Mm. What are you going to do? Nothing. Just a little phone call. Police headquarters. This is Johnny Dollar. Give me missing persons. Any particular one? Now, don't be a wise guy. Lieutenant Fisher. Yes, sir. Lieutenant Fisher. Fisher, this is Johnny Dollar. Hello, Dollar. Who'd you lose? One man, my mind, and if I'm not careful, my professional reputation. The guy's name is Brooks, Milford III. Got anything on him? Hold on. All right. Don't look at me like that. It wasn't all my fault. Dollar? Yeah? We haven't found him yet, but we think we know where he is. Huh? The Hudson River. At 11.15 tonight, his top coat, complete with identification, was found taking a ride on the 125th Street Ferry. Oh. Anything else? Uh, nothing much. A package of matches was found under the coat, monogram. Uh, you don't happen to know anybody whose initials are H.H., do you? H.H.? Yeah. There's always Horace Height. Uh, thanks, Fisher. I'll check back with you later. I'll be here. Mm, H.H., Harold Hatcher. Hmm mumbling about bad news? Looks like about two million bucks worth. They uh, found Milford's coat on the 125th Street Ferry. <laughs> you and your faraway romantic places. <laughs> Very funny. I'll see you later, honey, maybe about 11. <laughs> Expense account, item four. Nightclubs. $28. Harold Hatcher's hatchery was in a cellar under a hotel, but the prices were high enough to raid a penthouse. The club was draped in too much satin, its lady customers in too little. The decor was French provincial, the music was Brazilian, and the food was from Dixie. The drinks looked weak and the waiters looked strong. All in all, the joint was a sight for sore eyes, for making them sore. The only pretty thing in the place was a blonde. She came strolling up to my table, her hips unconsciously sending subtle little messages back to the rumba band. She opened her mouth, slid her tongue over her lower lip, and let a few warm, soft words slide out. Looking for someone? Well, you'll do until the real thing comes along. Sit on. Thanks. I won't have a drink. Well, I didn't ask you. My name is Janelle. Janelle? Wow, that's a nice name. I understand you were asking about Mr. Hatcher. Well, I asked if he was in. The waiter said he wasn't. Do you know him? More than somewhat. What do you want to see him about? A mutual friend, Milford Brooks. Uh-huh. I know most of the quiet clothes boys around here, so you want a cop. You don't look like the type that would be a society friend of the Brooks family, so what are you? Uh, I'll ignore that. Is Hatcher around? He might be. Then come on. Where's his office? the top of those stairs. Can I expect any trouble getting in? You won't have any trouble. How do you know? Because Harold sent me down here to look you over. Oh. I think you're all right. So, I won myself the good housekeeping seal of approval, huh? Keeping a house with you would meet with my approval. I ran for my life at a slow walk up the stairs. When I located the door to Hatcher's office, I knocked once and went in. Come on in. Thanks. So I'm Johnny Dollar. I was hired by East Coast Underwriters to protect the interest of a kid named Milford Brooks III. Oh, what's that supposed to mean to me? You know him, don't you? Well, he isn't exactly one of my boozing buddies. How much money does he owe you? 
Now well, we've got him on the books for a few, Bob. Why? They picked up his top coat tonight on the 125th Street ferry. He wasn't in it. It might have been suicide. It might have been a knockover made to look like a suicide. What's your choice? What do you get off asking me about my choice? Where were you between 11 and 11.30 tonight? What's it to you? Now, I thought you might like to rehearse some answers. The law will be asking some questions real soon now. I don't know why I should tell you, but I was driving around in my car getting some air. Oh, now, you'll have to do better than that. They found one of your match folders under Brooks' coat. You're out of your mind. Let me ask you. The kid owed me a couple of hundred thousand. You think I'm going around knocking off my own assets? Hatcher, I, I, I don't know whether you're stupid or bright. Don't worry about it. I know. What about that insurance policy? What insurance policy? Now, look, Hatcher, we're big boys. We both know that changing a beneficiary in an insurance policy is a legal transaction. That means witnesses. That means it isn't secret. What are you talking about? That you and East Coast underwriters and I know all... All know that Brooks made you the beneficiary in his policy and that you stand to come into two million bucks when they fish out his body. I don't know anything about it. Motives don't come much bigger. I'm telling you, this is all news to me, and you and nobody else is going to make me move off that story. I feel the same about mine. It doesn't take a genius to know that Brooks didn't love you two million dollars worth. There's only one logical reason for his making you the beneficiary. You forced him into it. Who'd believe anything else? Who cares? They'd have to prove it. And, brother, that can't be done. Now, how would you... Yeah. Okay, Rocky, thanks for the news. Take the inspector into the bar and buy him a drink. I'll be right down. Dollar, did you turn me in? They're here, huh? Yeah. No, I didn't turn you in. I'm not a cop. Here, have a cigarette. Thanks. Here's a light. Well, come on. Maybe they just want to sell me some tickets to the policeman's ball. For a guy in a hot spot, Hatcher was certainly a cool customer. I followed him out of the office, down the stairs, and back into the club. Janelle was sitting there right where I'd left her. And I thought to myself, now there's a gal who should never sit down. She looks so pretty standing up. Janelle, buy Mr. Dollar a drink. I have to go play 20 questions with some fellas in the bar. Sure, baby. Anything you say. Anything. I'll see you, Dollar. Yeah. How'd you make out? Well, you can never tell about a guy like that. He's a smart boy, strong, silent type. Wouldn't talk, huh? A real close mouth act. About what? Oh, just a little doodad. Two million dollar life insurance policy. Wait a minute. That young Brooks kid? That's right. I knew it. Tried to tell him he'd get into trouble, but he wouldn't listen to me. Oh, you knew about it, huh? I suppose you also know what was behind it. Sure, Milford owed him some money. A lot of money. It's in writing. What kind of writing? The personal note that Brooks was going to get back if he made Harold beneficiary. Well, where is this note? Do I look like the kind of girl who'd put the finger on her boyfriend? You look like the kind of girl who'd do anything if she wanted to. Thanks. I'll give you a slight hint. It's in his office. You'll find it in the inside pocket of one of his suits in the wardrobe. What are you waiting for? I'll watch the bar. Nothing, sweetheart. Nothing at all. Whatever her reasons, Mr. Harold Hatch's little female playmate was trying awful hard to send him up on a murder rap. And I was going to try awful hard not to let her down. Back in Hatcher's office, I found myself alone in a room with a telephone. And being a guy who can never resist a free call, I unleashed the magic wonders of the AT&T. This better be you, Johnny Dollar. Shh, quiet, Butter. I've only got a few seconds. Now, now look, Angel, I... Angel, just another hour. I'll get you a nice present. I don't care if you're another century. And as for presents, the 
you brought me was a drunk, and you even let him get away from me. Good night. <sighs> Life presents a gloomy picture ever downward toward the tomb. Having wasted those few precious moments of an already misspent youth, I decided I'd better get on my pony before Mr. Hatcher showed up. I found Milford Brooks' personal note in one of Hatcher's suits, all right. As a matter of fact, I found something in all his suits. A great big glimmer of light. Expense account, item five. Taxi fare, $10. I left the office in a hurry, Janelle at her table and Hatcher at his bar. I got out of the club and into a taxi parked a half block down the street. There, I waited until my favorite suspect left the hatchery and piled into another cab, and off we went. On a chase that would have made Ben-Hur look like a plowing bee. We skittered over to Lexington and headed uptown. At 72nd, the cab turned right and pulled to a stop. My driver was on his toes, and his toes were on his brake. We stopped, too, half a block behind. You want us to wait, huh? No, here you are. Keep the change. Hey, thanks. It was a garage that belonged to a residence on the parallel street a block away. The living quarters upstairs were dark enough to look interesting. I indulged in a bit of genteel breaking and entering. Entering that old barn didn't take much breaking. I crept up the stairs. It sounded like they were left over from an old ghost story. And so did the first voice I heard when I stopped halfway up. We've got to be careful, especially about that Johnny Dollar. Are you sure he didn't follow you? That voice sounded awfully dry to be coming from a guy who supposedly had spent most of the night snoozing in the bottom of the Hudson River. It was Milford Brooks III. Get up on your feet, Brooks. Now, wait a minute, I... I started this thing slugging you, and I might as well finish it the same way. Leave him alone, you... Now, pull in, pull in the claws, Angel. And sit on his lap. You hard-footed hick. I'll kill you. Get off of me. Huh? I should have known better than to get mixed up with a low-class female like you. Why, you, Pump? Now, hold it. We've pushed the lady around enough, Brooks. Tell me to be careful, will you? Why didn't you think of that before you let him here? Wipe your nose, little boy. Now, don't you go getting fat-headed, gorgeous. Neither one of you are exactly what I'd call masterminds. When you planted that match folder on a little boy Blue Blood's topcoat on the ferry boat, you both should have been more careful. You think so? You bet I think so. If I were planning a piece of evidence to incriminate Mr. Harold Hatcher, I would have left a cigarette lighter. I found one in the pocket of every suit he owns back there in his closet in the club. It wasn't hard to figure out that that guy never carries a book of matches. What do you want? I'm only interested in one thing. Saving the insurance company $2 million. And Buster, I think you've done it for me. Dollar, I... This is insurance fraud. It has been ever since you put on that fake suicide attempt. Trying to extort 500000 bucks out of the company. Dollar, wait a minute. Ah, come on. We're leaving. You heard him, Dollar. Harold. Hatcher. He said, wait a minute. He wants to talk. Yeah, everybody wants to get in on the act. How did you get here? When the police in this town think maybe a guy's jumped off a ferry boat and nobody's seen him do it, they check the counters on the turnstiles at each end. In the case of Brooks, as many people got off that boat as got on. Well, it makes sense. They'd hardly hold a guy because somebody lost a topcoat. Uh, how did you know we were here? You know me, baby. You never go anyplace I don't know about. Okay, Brooks, you felt like talking. Now I feel like listening. Get it up. Well, I... I don't know what you mean. I know what you mean, Hatcher. 
One, he gave you a big, fat $2 million motive for murder. And two, he did his best to make it look like you did murder him with that broken-down match cover plant on the ferry boat. It's just that simple. And you, baby? Harold, please. You put him up to it, didn't you, you cheap little muscler? Trying to get rid of me, will you? No, Harold. Now, calm down, Hatcher. You don't need any gun around here. They're tame. Well, maybe I'm not. Since so many people have gone to so much trouble to hand me a nice, easy way to make $2 million, maybe I'll just go ahead and make it. I'll show these amateurs how these things are really done. Come on, Brooks. How'd you like to go for a nice, cool half a ferry boat ride? No, Hatcher. No. Look, it's her fault. I'll give you anything you You're want. You're wrong, sonny boy. You're going to give me everything. No. No. You can't. Let me out of here. Brooks bolted for the door. Hatcher snapped a shot at him. And I hit Hatcher with a do-or-die tackle from behind. The gun flew out of his hand. No, you don't. I beat him to it and swung it straight into his skull. <laughs> Half the people in the room were lying there bleeding. Brooks from gunshot, Hatcher from gun butt. Janelle and I stood there panting. But believe me, not for each other. We stood that way until the police arrived. Dollar, it's beyond me. I sent you out to protect the life of a very important policyholder, and now where are we? Standing in a hospital corridor, worrying about whether he's going to live or die. As far as I'm concerned, Mr. Farnsworth, you're only half right. I'm just standing in a hospital corridor. Oh, Dollar, you're heartless. Well, if you'd been bitten where he bit me, you wouldn't care if he lived or died either. I'm getting out of here. Well, where are you going? It'll be explained in my expense account under miscellaneous expense. Oh, don't fall over when you come to an item for $318. $318? For what? Not for what, Farnsworth. For whom? Expense account total. And it all adds up to a little matter of $1,182.23. Which you may say, Mr. Farnsworth, is a lot of money for one man to spend in two days. But you must bear in mind that the amount at stake was $2 million. And you know the price of steak these days. It might comfort you to know that I just returned from the hospital. Brooks was strong enough to make a full statement, which you will find and close. This in itself should prove sufficient to establish evidence of attempted fraud against your company, allowing you to immediately avoid his policy. It uh, boils down to one sentence, to wit. Brooks and Janelle wanted to get rid of Hatcher so that they could live happily ever after. Knowing those two, they never had a chance. And oh, yes, that, uh, <laughs> that miscellaneous item, the one for $318, it, uh, it was a bracelet for a certain party who made this special investigation for me very special. Oh, if you want a receipt for this item, I'll send you a lock of her hair. Yours, uh, mm, truly, Johnny Dollar. the final signature on his expense account, Dick Powell as Johnny Dollar has just closed the books on his first adventure in this new CBS series. The script for tonight's broadcast was written by Paul Dudley and Gil Dowd, and the music was created and conducted by Dick Arant. 
The entire production was under the direction of Tony Leader. Be sure to tune in again next week when the expense account covers Special Investigation Singapore, another unusual adventure starring Dick Powell in... Yours, mm, truly, Johnny Dollar. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The first ever episode, a kind of trial balloon audition program that never appeared on the air, of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Dick Powell, the first and last time he'd take on that role, on Pearl Harbor Day in 1948. Next week, we'll hear another early Johnny Dollar here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. In literature, a pastoral is a story or poem that gives a beautiful, romantic picture of country life. In the United States, the cowboy western paints that same image for a lot of people. Maybe that's why, in radio and later TV, westerns were among the first shows directed to young audiences. The western gives at least one version, both good and bad, of an American dream. And one of the most popular Western series among young people was Hop Along Cassidy. It was developed for radio and television pretty much at the same time by its star, William Boyd, and Commodore Productions. It was a huge success, and Mr. Boyd's picture was the first ever to appear on kids' lunchboxes, along with lots of other merchandise. Part of what made Hopalong Cassidy a hit on TV and radio was Mr. Boyd's rich voice. We'll hear it in an episode called Gunsmoke Rides the Stagecoach Trail. It starts with a common event in Westerns. A stagecoach carrying the pay for a bunch of workers gets robbed by bandits. It'll also help to know that a nester in the Old West was a settler, usually a hard-working farmer, who didn't have any legal rights to the land, but who scratched out a living off of it. From April 4th, 1949, it's an episode of the series targeted to young listeners, Hop Along Cassidy, starring William Boyd. It's Hop Along Cassidy. With action and suspense, out of the Old West comes the most famous hero of them all, Hop Along Cassidy, starring William Boyd. The ring of the silver spurs heralds the most amazing man ever to ride the prairies of the early West, Hopalong Cassidy. This famous hero thrills his 60 million fans with action and dangerous adventure. In the role of Hopalong Cassidy is the popular star of the motion picture series, William Boyd. And now, another exciting story of the early West. Gunsmoke rides the stagecoach trail.
In these early days of the West, the common way to travel is by stagecoach. It's generally a long, hot trip with no excitement, unless a hold-up man decides to stop the stage and liven things up by robbing the strong box and the passengers. Well, in our story today, driver Corrigan of the Ridge City-bound stage has just looked down the barrel of a six-gun as the stage was relieved of the mine payroll. When the gunman departed, Corrigan whipped up his horses and raced the remaining two miles into Ridge City. Oh, go, you critters. Well, get the sheriff quick. The stage has been held up. About a mile back, took the whole darn payroll. How, how many of them? Uh, just one of them. You mean he took the mine payroll? Every red cent of it, the vomit. What's this, Corrigan? What's happened? Held up. Got held up. Omri with a handkerchief over its face and a black hat. Horse? Didn't see none. Only thing I noticed was that gun barrel. Looked like a stovepipe to me. Got an idea how he looked? Well, he's about your size, Bert. Black hat, and I noticed when he turned sideways... Had red hair hanging out from under his hat. Redhead, eh? Yeah. Hear that, fellas? Hear that, Nestor Pritchett. Out near the bar, Tony. I'm thinking the same thing. Yeah, well, let's go get him, huh? Yeah, before he mooses with the payroll. Yeah, he's got a lot of explaining to do. Yeah, how about the sheriff? We don't need the sheriff. It's our money, ain't it? Well, that's right. Seems like you're all set and pinning on the Nestor. What do you mean by that, Corrigan? Well, lots of fellas his size and your size. We're wasting time, boy. Yeah, come on. You're right. We'll be heading for the open spaces if we blab around here. Hey, we got the law here, Bert. Government will send a man. I ain't asking the law to collect my pay. I can do it myself. Come on, boys. We'll clean out this nest and spread once and for all. Now back to Hopalong Cassidy and our story Gunsmoke Rides the Stagecoach Trail. Stagecoach running into Ridge City has been held up by a lone gunman, and the payroll for the mines, about $20,000, was taken. When the driver reported the holdup, the miners decided from the description that the gunman is a red-headed nester by the name of Pritchard. Tempers flare, and the miners, led by Bert Neal, ride to the nester's ranch house. Hopalong Cassidy, unaware of what's happening at the neighboring ranch, is on the porch of the Bar 20 talking with a gentleman. So I told Judge Dawes I'd convey his greetings to you, Mr. Cassidy. That I have done. And I would appreciate your being my guest for dinner soon at my hotel. Hotel? But Mr. Butterfield, no friend of Judge Dawes, stays at a hotel when they're this close to the bar 20. The judge told me you would say exactly that, Mr. Cassidy. But I'm used to being alone. You can be to yourself here, sir. And you'd like it a lot better than the Ridge Hotel. Nobody to bother you, lots of sun. I'm afraid you make it impossible for me to do other than accept your hospitality, uh, Mr. Cassidy. That's good. California will be back from town any minute now. A professional man leads a stilted life. Very stilted, sir. Uh, We don't ask a man his business around here, Mr. Butterfield, but uh, I take it you're a lawyer. For 15 years, I had my own office, buried my nose in law books, working day and night to build a future, only to have it crushed about my ears. Hmm. Mining? No, no, it was a young woman I'd hope would be Mrs. Butterfield. Ah, but come, let's not be morbid. That's the past. I'm living now for the future, Mr. Cassidy. That's the way to look at it. A month or so here in the sun, good food and friends, and you'll be a new man, Mr. Butterfield. If you're sure that I won't be... Let's uh... not say another word. I've left my bag at the hotel. California can get it for you later this evening. You're very kind. Ah, here comes California now. My, what a remarkable horseman. Something's wrong, or he wouldn't be riding that way. Puppy! Puppy, the stage has been held up! Well, don't lose your breath. The fellow, fellow with red hair took the whole darn payroll, every cent of it. Oh, back up just a minute. 
Where's your manners, California? We have company. Uh, you know, they're saying Red Pritchard, uh, the, the nester's the varmint. California. And, uh, oh, uh, excuse me, Hoppy. Darn it. Meet Mr. Butterfield, friend of Judge Dawes up in Crescent. Uh, howdy. Uh, Bert Neal's heading a bunch of miners and rannies out to Pritchard's place. What for? Uh, smoke him out. Looks like trouble. Where's your law? He's out of town. Mob rule is bad rule, Mr. Cassidy. I know Red Pritchard. He's a nester, but not a bandit. You make yourself at home, Mr. Butterfield. This goes too far. It may be plain murder. We're not too late. Well, maybe not. Maybe Red's holding them off. Come on, we gotta stop this. Look like he's scared, isn't he, Bert? I'll smoke him out with this six-gunner. My name ain't Bert Neal. Sure would be bad if he weren't the hombre. Then why don't he come out and say so? Looks like he's waiting for our next move. Mm. What's going on here, Bert? The boys want to burn Pritchard out. I knew this nester was no good. No man's got a right to do his own lawmaking. He took the whole payroll from the stage, my money, and everybody else's. We got a right to get it back. Were you on the stage? Well, no. Did you see the holdup? Now, look, Cassidy. But you're I... sure Red Pritchard's the bandit? The boys think so. He's got red hair, headed this way. Better call him off, Bert. So you're siding with the nest. I'm I... saving you a lot of trouble. Uh, mighty nice of you. But you or nobody else is going to back this nest. Uh, That's where you're wrong, Bert. If he's so all-fired innocent, why don't he come out? And run into a bullet? Put up them six guns and he'll come out. I'll give my word he will, Bert. Well, all right, Cassidy. We'll try it your way. And if it don't pan out, we're doing it our own hey, way. Hey, what's your life we're going to do? Men, just a minute. Yeah, well, all right. I'm yeah. going in and bring Red Pritchard out. I don't want any gunplay. Bring him to us. Yeah, come on, get him out. Yeah. And, Bert, if any harm comes to Hoppy, I'm up putting daylight through you. There won't be no trouble unless Red starts it. There won't be any trouble. Any that I can't handle. Just don't get careless with that six-shooter, Bert. I'm a-watching that, Hoppy. Of course, maybe it'd be better if I kind of sided you to the porch. Now, you stay here, California. This is a job for one man. About food, California. Well, now, there ain't nothing more you can do until later, Hoppy. Huh? Just stop worrying. All those folks at the mine with no pay and Red Pritchard up in that draw someplace, hiding like a hunted animal. Well, yeah. Hoppy, look, over yonder. What? He's <laughs> sound asleep in the hammock, Mr. Butterball. Butterfield, California. Oh, yeah, 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 Butterfield. Oh, poor fella. He'd have had more company at the hotel. Well, well, I've been waiting for you. Sorry, Mr. Butterfield. You'll have to excuse us for being late. Ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous. I've been having the time of my life. I hope you won't mind my trying my hand at cooking. Uh, food? Yes, I took the liberty of preparing a meal when it got late and I... Um... Good. You have no idea how good this is going to taste. It wasn't much to get, Mr. Buttercup, but... Uh, 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 Butterfield, California. Uh, uh, how droll. Judge Dawes knew what he was about when he advised my looking you up. I'm warning you, I'm not too much of a... Yeah. <clears throat> the first time I had enough to eat, 
for a week. California, <clears throat> your mouthful. I know, I filled it. I didn't do so badly for a bachelor, huh? If you ever decide to cook for a career, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hoppy, better be riding back in the draw. Got lots to do yet tonight. Must you go again? Won't be long. Maybe you can find a book or something. Oh, now, don't concern yourself with my welfare. I'll find lots to do to keep busy. Uh, we'll go in town tomorrow and make up for this, Mr. Butterfield. Oh, tish tosh. But, uh, isn't riding at night dangerous back in the <clears throat> draw? Horse might stumble, you know? Well, we, we just ride to the peak and then foot it down to the shed. Uh, you know where everything is, Mr. Butterfield. If we're late, just get a good night's sleep. No telling what time we'll get back. Good evening, Curly, my boy. I have news of great importance for you. Cut out that fancy palaver, Jinx. If you ever mention Jinx again, you swine, I'll slit your throat. Well, now, I didn't mean no harm. We've got to work fast. Cassidy and that stupid cowpoke California are meeting this nester. When? Right now. You know where the draw is? Sure do. Mine shaft near it? No, right where it is. Did you plant the paper bands off that money? Out near the nester's fence. Good. We've got to beat Cassidy to the shaft and keep that nester out of sight until we make one more stage grab. How about Cassidy? He's a tough hombre. Dead men aren't tough men. You mean... Uh... You see this little forty-five bullet? All polished up? I see it. What's it for? When you bid farewell to your host, you always leave him a little gift of appreciation. I'm leaving this right in his back. Holdup has occurred in Ridge City, and the stage robbed of the $20,000 mine payroll. Some hot-blooded miners accuse the nester, Red Pritchard, of being the gunman. Meantime, a cultured gentleman named Butterfield arrives at the Bar 20, saying that he is a great friend of Hoppy's pal, Judge Dawes. So, Hoppy has offered him the usual Cassidy hospitality. But now we learn that the visitor is a very much wanted holdup man, and is working with the miner, Curly. They are edging their way toward the old mine shaft where the nester is hiding. How'd you find out where the nest is hiding? That overfed, underbrained California let it drop. Sure was a smart thing, you moving in there <laughs> and then telling you everything you want to know. Yes, it takes real brains to keep the law off for seven years. Now, now, take it easy. Right across the creek there, mm -hmm. up about 60 feet. An old mine shaft must be the one. And we're here ahead of Cassidy. Good. How are we going to get over there? You fool, we don't go over there. Huh? Then we don't leave Prince. I'm using this rifle. I practice by shooting hummingbirds at a thousand feet. Yeah, I've seen you do it. Now stay behind this boulder. You can see when he moves around back in there. That opening behind him silhouettes him perfectly. How long are you staying around, Jinx? I mean, Butterfield. One more payroll. Then back to Kansas City. I got to lay low for a while after you get... You will. Uh, huh? Wait. There he is. In that opening. Can't hardly see back in there. I see good enough. You got him. He's down. Of course. I never miss. Convenient, isn't it? To have that dead nester take the blame for two holdups. <laughs> I wish it weren't quite so simple. I'm getting a little bored. Uh, 
like as not to break his neck if that moon weren't out. Not much further now, California. The mine entrance is just around these rocks. You know something, Hoppy? I don't think Red Pritchard had one darn thing to do with that stage horror. It's not for us to judge. Oh, but gosh, 10,000. <laughs> That'd buy a whole room full of meatballs with gravy oozing out under the eaves. Yeah. Careful now. We'll drop down the ledge. Maybe we'd better let him know who we are. If he's scared, like as not, he'll be a shooting. That's a good idea. Better call in to him. Red? Come on in. All of you. I'll blast every last one of you. Come on. Back, California. Step oh, in, you yellow-livered coyotes. I'm giving you chance. He's down, Hoppy. What's wrong with him? It's Cassidy, Red. He ain't moving. Come on, California. He's hit. He's breathing. Someone beat us here. He looks like he caught it in the shoulder. I'll tie up the wound. Stop that bleeding. Gotta get home, boys. Mary Lou's alone. Let me go. Take it easy, Red. It's Cassidy. Uh, Cassidy? And I was thinking you was my friend. Oh, we are, Red. We, we just found you this way. How do you feel, Red? My well, shoulder's doing some throbbing. He just got creased, Red. Feel up to leaving here? Where are you taking me? Well, the only place I know is safe for you is the bar 20. You'd be mighty hard to take out of there. It seems like we should let the sheriff know about Red. That we got him out here in our barn. There's plenty of time for that. We want whoever winged Red to believe he's dead. Maybe a show his hand. Oh, I see what you mean. I ain't saying a word to nobody about where he is. Even if they cut out my tongue. I know that, California. I'm going to need all the help you can give me. Because I've got a feeling that something's going to happen. And right soon. You know, I feel plumb ashamed treating Mr. Butterfield the way we've been doing. Well, you got it right this time. We'll make it up once we get time. Well, well, glad you're back. Won't you join me in a game of pinochle? Uh, sure like to, Mr. Butterfield, but I'd better get washed up a bit. Your sleeve. Are you hurt, Mr. Cassidy? Hurt? Hmm? Hmm, blood. What happened? Oh, I know. When we moved the nester, we got blood on us. Great Scott, you mean something happened to the poor man? Is there no law, no protection? He's all right now. Don't let it upset you, sir. They ain't finding him where he is now. I must say you're a friend in need, Mr. Cassidy. Um, I know a little about treating a wound, you know. No, he's resting very well. You're here to enjoy yourself. Well, you know best, of course. I couldn't induce you to play a little pinochle in? Oh, we don't play much cards. I'm a poor loser myself. You're a poor loser. <laughs> You're nothing like Judge Dawes. Well, I played pinochle all evening with him. Just a dollar a game on how he complained when he lost. Oh, uh, Mr. Moved. Butterfield, I hope you understand why we can't spend more time with you. Perfectly. Indeed, I do. Uh, me. Well, I feel a little fresh air would do me a world of good. Would you like to join me, Mr. Cassidy? Well, not right now. Maybe later. Well, I won't be long. Don't worry about me at all. I'll be all right. It's a uh, fixing to get dark. Don't get lost. I won't go far. Well, I'd better get cleaned up, California. I have some riding to do. Hmm? Riding? Yeah. Uh, forgot to get, uh, get a couple of things in town. Uh, won't take me over an hour or two. 
You stay around and keep an eye on Red Pritchard. Shucks, Hoppy, we can't keep Red in the hay barn long with his shoulder like that. I'll have a talk with the doc in town and be right back. Darn, you ain't gonna get much sleep, Hoppy. I've got a feeling that you're not too far wrong, California. Butterfield, what are you busting in my cabin for? What's wrong? Plenty, Curly. Cassidy catching on? Not Cassidy, it's the Nestor. The Nestor? I missed my shot at him. How do you know? Cassidy and that carpoke friend of his brought the Nestor to the ranch. Blood on both of them. Maybe he's hit so bad he can't talk. I don't think so. Well, what are we going to do? There's only one thing to do. Kill the Nestor before he talks. It spoils our next grab with him being found. There isn't going to be any next grab, Curly. Now, I may have to leave rather sudden, so get out that 10000 and I'll take my half. I'm leaving with you. You're doing no such thing. You're still following orders. But I ain't gonna... Butterfield, that six-gun. I say you're still following orders. Oh, uh, sure. Of course I am. What do you want me to do? I want you to ride in, round up those miners, get them in a hating mood, and bring them out to the bar 20. And get the nester. Get him if you have to burn the barn down. Barn? In the hay barn. I scouted the barn while taking a short walk for air. Sort of heard someone mooning. You know what you're asking me to do, don't you? What do you mean? Cassidy's bad medicine. I entangle him with him. You don't have to. I'll be there. Incite the miners to rush the barn. And then? Take the nester out legal-like. Start for town with him, fair trial and all that. But he'll swear he didn't do it. Certainly. The answer to it is this. He's not going to get to town. Bushwhack him? How crude. Of course not. He tried to escape and the boys had to shoot. Simple? (laughs) I'm darn glad you're on my side, Butterfield. Now let's split the money, then get to town and stir up the miners and ride for that nester. Feeling better, Red? I sure do. Nice of Doc to come clear out here just for me. Oh, shucks. Doctors don't ask who's sick or hurt. Isn't there any way I can take my father home, Mr. Cassidy? Not yet, Mary. It isn't safe. Darned if I wouldn't like to get that gunsel in my sights. Making Red suffer like this. I don't think Red will have to stand it much longer. Did you hear that, Daddy? Oh, how wonderful to be like we was. I can't stand it. You're being hunted like an animal. Well, he's safe for the time being. Puppy. I, I hear riders. I know. I expected it. You expected it? My gun, hop along. I can still shoot. Stay where you are, Red. Don't come out. Mary, you stay here, too. Oh, Daddy. We have to leave you, but stay where you are. Come on, California. Now, we'll take our stand in front of this door, California. It's two against that mob. But you know what it'll mean if they take Red Pritchard. Now back to Hopalong Cassidy. Hey, Cassidy, we come to get the fellow who robbed us of our payroll. Meaning who? Meaning the Nestor, Red Pritchard. We know he's here. Yeah, we know he's here. How do you know he's here? Keeping talking ain't gonna stop us, Cassidy. Now I'm overside. We're going in. Come ahead, Curly. You boys heard Curly say he's going in? And we say he ain't. Make your move, Curly. Well, are we gonna wait all night, boys? Let's get on with the work. Uh, maybe you're wrong, Curly. Maybe the Nestor ain't. He's in that barn and he's coming out if we have to burn it down. We want him that robbed us. I don't blame you for that, Curly. And I'm going to give him to you. Oh, what's that, Hoppy? Uh, are you local? I mean just what I said. Well, I don't understand what... Then hand him over and let's get him in jail. Here comes Mr. Butterfield. Get ready for anything now, California. Great Scott, Mr. Cassidy. What's the row? 
The boys want the hold-up artist. Then in heaven's name, why don't you give him to them? I'm going to do just that, Jenks. What? Hubby! All right, stay back, Curly. Something's funny here. Shooting a man in cold blood, Cassidy. Jenks is all right. He'll have a sore hand for a while. But, Hoppy, doggone it, I don't... There's your stage robber, boys. Take him in. I got plenty of proof. They're taking you too, Curly. I'll not go alone. Oh, get him, boys. Stop, Curly. He's in on this throat. I'll take care of him. I'll remember this, and someday I'll even the score. We'll meet again. You can drop the dramatics, Butterfield. The only thing you'll meet is a hangnoose. That's right. Come on, Butterfield. And no funny stuff. All right, I'll go, but don't worry. I'll get in. Well, now, don't you sit there grinning like a chassis cat, Hoppy. You know darn well you got some explaining to do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I have, California. It was the telegram. Hmm? What telegram? I sent a telegram to Judge Dawes when I went in for the dock. I thought you was gone a long time just to get dock. Judge Dawes said he never heard of Butterfield, but to check and see if my description didn't fit a fellow by the name of Jenks. Well, uh, I know, Hoppy, but how did you know to send a telegram to Judge Dawes? Darned if I suspicioned anything wrong. Well, you see, California, Butterfield slipped when he mentioned Pinochle. The judge hates cards like a rattlesnake. Never played a hand in his life. Goodbye from Hopalong Cassidy. And so an exciting adventure ends for Hoppy in California. We hope you'll be back with us soon when Hoppy will again bring you more adventure and excitement. Hopalong Cassidy, starring William Boyd, is transcribed and produced in the West by Walter White, Jr. Gunsmoke Rides the Stagecoach Trail was written by Howard Swart. All stories are based upon the characters created by Clarence E. Mulford. This is a Commodore production. Hopalong Cassidy, the episode called Gunsmoke Rides the Stagecoach Trail from the springtime of 1949 and part of our summertime listen to vintage radio programs meant for young people here on the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington in HD at 88.5 on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Dodge City, where we lay our scene. Sorry, Bill Shakespeare, I had to adapt those opening lines from your play to introduce an episode called Romeo, from January 22, 1956, CBS and Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. 
around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Marshal, Chester. Hi, Mr. Uh, hello, Jake. What brings you into town? Marshal, are you interested in stopping a killing? A killing? One, maybe more. Uh, what's the trouble, Jake? Andy Bowers. Emmett Bowers' kid? He ain't a kid if he's old enough to be bullying around after my daughter. Well, Judy's a pretty little thing. I can't say I blame Andy. I told that boy, if he ever set foot on my place again, I'd shoot him. And you would, huh? I would. Jake, you and Emmett Bowers are the two biggest cattlemen around here. Why do you have to be enemies? There's room for both of you. There ain't enough room in the whole United States for me and Emmett Bowers. All right, all right, Jake. And I suppose you know what'll happen if you shoot Andy. That's why I want you to put him in jail. Let him cool off for a while. You'll forget about Judy. You think I'd put a man in jail just because you don't happen to like him, Jake? I'm an important man in Kansas, Marshal, and I run things my way. But you don't run the United States government, and you don't run me. All right. I tried. Now it's going to happen, Marshal. It's going to happen fast. Doc yammering about, Mr. Dillon? I don't know, Chester. Sitting here, taking your ease in the sun while the whole country's gone to war. Why, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. What you been feeding on, Doc? <laughs> it isn't me, Chester. I just came back from Bower's Ranch, Matt. The cook out there's got the ague again. And let me tell you, that place is an armed camp. Every man on it is carrying a rifle. They've got sentries posted and everything. Now, does Emmett think Judy Worth is going to come over there and steal, Andy? No, but it seems like some of Jake Worth's men fired on a couple of Bowers' riders the other day. Said they were off their home ground or some such fool thing. And ever since, both sides have been fixing for battle. Oh, <laughs> and it won't take much to start one either, Matt. Yeah. Well, knowing Jake and Emmett, there's no point in my talking to them. Yonder comes half the cause of the trouble right now. What? Yonder. Huh? That's Andy Bowers. 
Hey, Andy. Andy. Oh, he's a nice boy, Andy. Well, that little Judy Worth's a nice girl, too. Hi, Doc. <laughs> Hello, Hello, Andy. Andy, uh, Doc tells me that there's a war about to break out over you and Judy Worth. Well, I know, Marshal. But I can't talk my pawn to anything any more than Judy can hers. If her mothers were alive, it might be different. The way it is, it's pretty hopeless. What do you mean, hopeless? Well, I guess I'd better stop trying to see her, that's all. Oh, that's a fine way to talk. Well, I don't want to, Doc. Then where's your spunk, boy? Where's your get-up-and-go? Don't you love the girl? Of course I love her. But you're going to let a couple of cantankerous, selfish old men beat you out of her. Doc. Why, you don't deserve her. What she needs is a man, not a whimpering kid who turns back at the first sign of a little rain. Doc. Well, it's true, Matt, and you know it. But they'll never let us get married, Doc. What have they got to do with it? It isn't them who's getting married. I know. Well, I've thought of running off. I never said nothing to Judy about it, though. Don't talk about it, Act. Doc. If she won't go with you, then she doesn't love you as much as you think she does. <laughs> well, maybe you're right. What do you think, Marshal? It's not for me to decide, Andy. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's my business. Mine and Judy's. Yes. I better get going now. Goodbye. Uh, goodbye, Bye. boy. Uh, oh, Doc, you did a real good job. Yeah. You think he'll do it? I don't know. But if he does, there'll be war, sure. And I know a broken-down, romantic old country croaker we can blame it on. Oh, fiddle-faddle. You want those kids to get married just as much as I do. And anyway, it's time you started earning your pay around here. <laughs> well, I got things to do. Let me hear what happens, Matt. Yeah, don't worry, Doc. You'll hear. Nobody's lost his temper so far, Chester. <laughs> I reckon you'll be needing me anymore? <laughs> no, I won't need you. You can go to bed. Somebody's sneaking in the back. Yeah. Get over on the other side of the room, Chester. Yes, sir. Why, it's Andy Bowers. Andy? Who's that in back of you? Come on, Judy. Hello, Marshal. Chester? Well, I... What are you two doing here? I got word to Judy and she sneaked off and met me. Doc was right, Marshal. She wanted to go. Of course I did. Well, what did you come here for? We're being followed, Marshal. We gotta hide somewhere. You can't stay here, Andy. I'll think of a way we can sneak out of Dodge, Marshal. But we can't do it tonight. Uh, you say you're being followed, huh? Yeah. Judy's pa and a couple of his men. 
We lost them a few miles back, but they're sure to ride on into Dodge. Where'd you leave your horses? Oh, they're tied out and back. And I got to do something with them. Look, Andy, your pa and Judy's are going to start a war over this, and you're putting me right in the middle of it. Don't you realize that? Well? I guess he's right, Andy. We can't get him mixed up in it. But he's the only man around here we can trust. I know, but it isn't fair to put all this on him. Oh, maybe you're right, Judy. Come on. I'll think of something. But we better hurry before they catch us. Wait. Wait a minute. What, Marshal? Chester. Yes, sir? You go with Andy. Take those horses down to Moss Grimmick's stable and tell him to hide them. Oh, uh, well, Moss knows how to do that, Mr. Grimmick. And put Andy up in the loft somewhere. Moss will understand. All right, sir. Oh, what about Judy? Now, you two get going. I'll take care of Judy. Oh, he's going to help us, Andy. He's going to help us. Yeah, I'm going to help you. But who's going to help me, I sure don't know. Ah, here we are, Judy. Doc! Hey, Doc! Yes, Matt. What is it? Uh, come out here a minute, will you? Uh, I was just mixing a little something there. I think I was... so, uh, well, hello, Judy. Hello, Doc. Look, uh, Doc, I was wondering if Judy could stay here until she and Andy can get on out of town. I, I'm sure it'll surprise you, but they're running away. They're running away? Oh, no. They are? Oh, well, isn't that wonderful? Yes, and we're going to make it, too, in spite of our fathers. You sure are. And you're welcome to stay right here as long as you want, Judy. Nobody will look for you here. Oh, that's real kind of you, Doc. Oh, no, no. It's just that I like the idea of people who want to get married just as much as you and Andy do. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I better get going. Uh, Now, you stay here, Judy, until you hear from me. You understand? All right, Marshal. Uh, yes. I think I'll go with you, Matt. <laughs> now, you can make yourself comfortable, Judy. And I'll be back in a couple of hours, and I'll bring you something to eat, huh? How's that? I'll be waiting for you, Doc, and thank you. Oh, you're a nice girl. Come on, Matt. Well, Matt? Doc, I know how... But I don't know why I got mixed up in this. But I'm sure in it now. Yeah, <laughs> uh, come on into Long Branch, Matt. You need a drink. Yeah, maybe I do, Doc. <laughs> Say, look, Matt. It's Jake Worth. Yeah. Who's that with him? His name's Ab Drain, Doc. Ab Drain? Yeah, Jake's hired himself a gunman. And a pretty good one, too. Uh-oh. They've seen you. Yeah, you stay out of the way, huh? <laughs> Don't worry. 
Well, I haven't seen you in a long time, Ab. Cheyenne, wasn't it? Me and Jake have been looking for you, Marshal. How's that so? Where's Judy? Judy? Now, don't lie to me, Marshal. You know where she is. You're going to tell me? Is that what Ab's for, Jake? So you can push people around more than ever? Never mind him. I never have. Have I, Ab? You'll get it someday, Marshal. Maybe I'm the one who'll give it to you. Shut up, Ab. I don't want no fighting now. Why do you think I might know where Judy is, Jake? She was in your office, wasn't she? What? One of my men here in town saw her and that rotten Bowers kid ride around back of your office. Now, where is she? All right, Jake. They were in my office, yeah. Keep talking, Marshal. Jake told you to shut up, Ab. Now I'm telling you. Never mind that. Where is she? Jake, why don't you and Emmett Bowers call this off before there's a lot of useless bloodshed? Neither one of you can win anything this way. I ain't even listening to you, Marshal. All right, then go on home. And take Ab Drain with you. Who do you think you're talking to, Marshal? You can't bluff me, Ab. You know that. Now you get moving. I ain't bluffing, Marshal. Stop it. I don't want no fighting. Not yet. But I'm telling you this, Marshal. I'm going back to the ranch. And Judy's there in two hours, or I'm coming in here with every man I've got. And you know what I'll do. Don't be a fool, Jake. Let's go, Ab. Say, they look mad, Matt. They're coming back in two hours, Doc, with an army. Oh, no. Well, what are you going to do? I'm going to get Jim Buck out of bed. He's driving an empty stage west tomorrow morning anyway, and he can leave tonight. And the preacher can tie a horse on behind long enough to get Judy and Andy married. While you stay behind to take on Jake's army. Is that it? Yeah, that's it, Doc. Less than an hour later, Jim Buck quietly drove his stage out of Dodge. A couple of miles down the trail, he stopped long enough to witness the marriage of Judy Worth and Andy Bowers. And then he headed west as fast as his team could travel. Six hours later, I was sitting in the front room at Jake Worth's ranch house, stalling for time. As I had been ever since I got there. <laughs> I'm getting tired of this, Marshal. They'll be here any minute now, Jake. Just be patient. I think he's lying to us, Jake. Will you quit poking and hollering at me? Ah, oh, here they are. You men stay outside and close that door. Bring her in here, Chester. Where's Judy? Well, I... Where is she? I wouldn't know where she is, Mr. Worth. What? What are you saying? I'm saying the truth. Marshal, is this a trick? Yeah, Jake, it's a trick. Judy's a long way from here by now, and you'll never find her. Tell me where she is. Tell me, or by heaven, I'll kill you. I'm like Chester, Jake. I wouldn't know where she is. You lied to me. 
You said Chester was bringing her. Yeah, I lied to you, Jake. Marshal, so help me. Wait a minute, Jake. This is my job. Just get out of the way, Ab. Nah, nah. You couldn't take him. Don't you try it, Ab. Watch me. Now, don't make me kill you, Jake. No. It's too late anyway. Judy is gone. It's too late for anything. Mr. Worth? Get get out of here. I'll call you when I want you. Just get out. Where's he going? Wait here a minute, Chester. Yes, sir. Uh, this must be Judy's room, huh, Jake? I'll keep it for her. Like this. Maybe she'll come back someday. She won't be back, Jake. No. Don't, don't say that. It's true. You might as well face it. And you drove her away. No. You and Emmett Bowers both. If you'd once thought of Andy and Judy instead of yourselves, they'd be here now. I don't blame them for running off. They wouldn't be any good if they hadn't. You helped them. Why should they give up their happiness for a couple of mean, selfish old men? Sure, I helped them. You and Emmett have been too busy hating each other to be of any use to anybody, especially your own kids. Marshal, I... I'm going to tell you one thing, Jake. They're married now. Married? That's right. Now I'm going over and tell Emmett Bowers about it. No, wait, wait, Marshal. Yeah, what? You think it might help if maybe I rode over to Emmett's with you? It might help you and Emmett, Jake. And it might help the kids, too, when they hear about it. You know, a newcomer to the West was often referred to as a pilgrim and made fun of. But next week, a pilgrim nearly causes a wholesale massacre. And that was the West. Good night. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Sam Edwards, John Daner, James Nusser, and Joyce McCluskey. Harley Bear is Chester, and Howard McNear is Doc. Romeo, the story of two 
not-so-star-crossed lovers from Gunsmoke in the winter of 1956 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz, Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer, and Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org. And please look for us on Facebook, The Big Broadcast, and Instagram, Big Broadcast WAMU. Most of the stories we're going to hear tonight have to do with greed and how the chase for gold can change people. But we're about to hear an episode of one of radio's greatest comedies, Vic and Sade, that chronicles a different kind of pursuit of precious metals during World War II. We don't get a chance to play this brilliant, understated series as much as we'd like. It was mostly a serial, so not all of the episodes stand on their own. This one does, though, and it leads us to note that today is National Parents' Day. And the antidote to those two nasty fathers we just heard about in Gunsmoke are the two people in the small house halfway up in the next block, Vic and Sade, the adoptive parents of young Rush, and later of a second boy named Russell. With its very sincere emphasis on wartime shortages and sacrifices, it's the April 6, 1942 installment of the CBS series Vic and Sade. And now, get ready to smile again with radio's home folks, Vic and Sade. Vic and Sade, written by Paul Reimer, is brought to you each weekday by Procter & Gamble, the makers of the new Sure Mix Crisco. Well, sir, it's early evening as our scene opens now, and here on the front porch of the small house halfway up in the next block, we find Mr. Victor Gook all by himself. Mr. Gook is swinging gently in the swing, casually examining the newspaper for stray bits of intelligence he may have missed during the initial reading before supper. And at this moment, Sade appears around the corner of the house. Listen. Hey, this grassy isn't taking a hold in some places. Oh, there, Sadie. Disturb not my dream. Hi. Why are you wandering around the yard in that vagabond fashion? Oh, just seeing how stuff is growing. Come up and sit down by my side. I thought Rush was here with you. Rush come out the door like a tornado and beat it up the street. Oh, he must have beat it up to Bluetooth Johnson's house. Nicer Scott and Vernon Peckles are both there. Never stopped to tell you about the big excitement, huh? Yeah, he would. Well, he will when he gets back. What's the big excitement? The boys are going to accumulate scrap. Scrap? Old iron, tin, brass, lead, steel, and like that. Paper, rags, rubber, wire, and so forth. Oh, for the war? Yes, and it's a real good thing. Everybody's got trash cluttering up their house the government can use, and Rush and the boys plan Excuse on... Excuse me, I believe I discern Rush approaching. Yeah. Well, his step is elastic. No, well, he's excited about this. He's the chairman of the board. Him and Nicer and Bluetooth and Vernon have organized a big elaborate organization with a fancy highfalutin name. What is it? The Virginia Avenue Area Sons of Patriotism Salvage Indemnity. Hey, hey. <laughs> it is a real good thing. Rush was telling Either me... Either Rooster Davis or Smelly Clark or Leland Richards or Milton Welch or Willis Roybeck telephone mine. Nobody telephoned. Good. Sade. Yeah? Did either Y.Y. Flirch or Homer Hugh McGancy or Steve Chestbutter or Charlie Razorscum or Harry Fapp or Gus Feist or Fred Stembottom or Richigan Fishigan or Alf Mushigan or Y.I.I. Weisskeeper or H.K. Peeper... <laughs> Making fun of me, Olga. Yes. Want to tell you about the new project? 
She started to. Me and Bluetooth and Vernon and Nicer are going to get into it up to our ears. How's it happen you're trafficking with Nicer? I was under the impression you and Nicer were sworn enemies. We are, but we've called a truce for the duration. Oh. See, this scrap salvage business was maybe 14 or 15 percent his idea. Out of fairness, we had to include him in the organization. However, I am keeping a little black book. How you mean, Willie? Nicer and myself have declared a truce for the duration, but people's natures don't change, and Nicer Scott is just as miserable a scoundrel as he ever was. I'm keeping a little black book where I make a mark every time he requires a paste upside the snoop. Why, doggone it, I just got through spending 20 minutes with Nicer. And you know how many marks I was forced to put down my little black book? How many? Nine. He's got nine paste upside the snoop coming? Yes, the minute the war's over. Well, my gosh. All right. Tell Gov about the Virginia Avenue area, whatchamacallit. The Virginia Avenue area sons of patriotism salvage indemnity. Indemnity? Uh-huh. I don't think the term is used in that sense. Suits us, guys. Got kind of a fancy swing to it. The Virginia Avenue area, sons of patriotism salvage indemnity. You collect old metal, huh, for national defense? Yeah. And you'd be astonished at what the government is anxious to get a hold of. Doorknobs, hinges, keys, locks, knives, scissors, ashtrays, roller skates... Stove pokers, screwdrivers, faucets, sinks, pliers, hoes, pickaxes. I could run along half an hour. You collect all that from the people in the neighborhood here and send it to the government? No, you don't send it to the government. The government's got no way to handle it. We collect the scrap and sell it to the junk man. Well, what's he do with it? Sells it to manufacturers. Oh. You can either dispose of your scrap through a junk man, or you can donate it to a collection bureau downtown. Us guys prefer to deal with the junk man. Isn't that kind of mixing up financial gain with your patriotism? Well, I don't know as it is, God. Realizing a profit is something of an incentive. Of course, patriotism is a great big incentive in itself, but making some money on top of that just adds to the incentive. Yes, that's true. I'm greatly pleased with the setup. Uh-huh. Seems to me, Annabelle, that people would prefer to sell their own scrap if there's a profit in it. Well, yes, lots of people will. Those that have a lot of stuff laying around. But the government advises you not to call your junk dealer till you got a hundred pounds accumulated. I doubt if very many ladies in this neighborhood got that much, hey, Mom? No, probably not. Most everybody's got some little knick-knack cluttering up their attic or cellar. Trash they hesitate to throw away, and yet trash they wish they didn't have to give house room to. That kind of scrap they'll hand over quick as a wink. Glad to get rid of it. And feeling good because they know they're taking part in something. Uh-huh. And the darndest rubbish the government wants to get a hold of. Rubber heels, overshoes, tennis slippers, hot water bottles, bathing caps. Gosh, the list is a mile long. An individual don't want to burn or destroy a single article. Government want paper? Sure. Do you know how much scrap paper is required to make containers for shells? No. A hundred pounds. Do you know how much scrap paper was used to pack the cans of canned tomatoes the Army bought last year? A hundred pounds. 20,000 pounds of scrap paper was required. Where did you get all your information, Rush? Uh, Mr. Chinbunny gave quite a speech in assembly this morning. Oh. Well, I can whip out facts and figures by the bushel. Reason I inquired about paper, Vic. Uh Uh-huh. Them monstrous great big piles of magazines you got down cellar. Those monstrous big piles of magazines should remain down cellar. But they take up so much space I could use. Makes me mad every time I look at them. In the fruit room, there's that horrible, enormous stack of kitchenware dealers' quarterlies. And in the furnace room, there's that awful, tremendous pile of lodge magazines. Is there any sense in cherishing them and letting them heap up high every year? 
No, I guess not. I can part with him without a qualm at a time like this. Hey, there's that fine nicer Scott. Ain't he the dandy half-witted lame brain strutting around eating a hunk of bread with jelly on it? Just the sight of him makes you mad, huh? Just the sight of him makes me feel like putting down another mark in my little black book. Paste upside the snoot. Paste upside the snoot. How did he earn all those paste upside the snoot that you recorded in your little black book this evening? Various outrageous statements he made. Hmm. He was telling me how intense his family is when they get into something. Hmm? My Uncle Ralph, he said, fell in love with an Ohio lady. He told this Ohio lady he was so insane about her, he'd go so far as to disown his grandfather. And he done it. At a ceremony held in Hoffman City, Oklahoma, he publicly disowned his grandfather, who died of grief 20 minutes later. Hey, hey. Nicer Scott earned himself a mark in my little black book for that excellent story. Mm. He earned himself another peachy mark by describing how patriotic his Uncle Harry is. How patriotic is his Uncle Harry? Here's how patriotic his Uncle Harry is. Ha, uh-huh. ha. nitwit ox. How patriotic is Nicer's Uncle Harry? Well, sir, according to Nicer... His Uncle Harry owns the Central Indiana and Midwest Railroad. Never heard of it. No, and neither did anybody else. How patriotic is Nicer's Uncle Harry? He's so patriotic, he tore up his railroad. Went out on the tracks in person with a pick and shovel, removed all the rails, and gave them to the government. Also, he gave the government all his locomotives and tools. All in all, he gave the government 10,000 miles of track, 46 locomotives, and 19 switch engines. That's pretty patriotic. Isn't it, though? Of course, there was one bad feature, according to Nicer. What was that? The Central Indiana and Midwest Railroad ran into Indianapolis before Uncle Harry tore it up. Now Indianapolis is cut off from outside civilization. People can't take a train in or take a train out. Indianapolis is doomed, says Nicer. Indianapolis has no railroad facilities. Indianapolis will dwindle from a great thriving city to a little village at the side of the road. All because of Uncle Harry's patriotism. Yes. I give Nicer two marks in my little black book for that fine true story. Mm. Look at him over there, choking down bread with jelly on it. Mm. When you boys gonna start accumulating your scrap, Willie? Right away. Government wants it quick. They need it. Need it bad. That's gonna be part of the work of the Virginia Avenue area Sons of Patriotism, Salvage, Indemnity. To get people to realize this is urgent. Convince them they shouldn't throw anything away. Mm-hmm. We're gonna go over this neighborhood with a fine-tooth comb. We'll get old alarm clocks, bicycle tires, rakes, shovels, pots, pans, springs, bowls, stovepipes, chains, everything. Uh Uh-huh. And we know the ladies will be glad to come across. I think they will. Well, gonna, you think about it a second, you understand they'll be overjoyed to come across. Hmm. We don't care particularly if they give us their scrap or not. They can take it downtown to the collection bureau or they can call for their own junk man. Just so they dig it up out of their cellars and attics and start it moving. Yes. I was talking with a fellow down at the office the other day that was telling oh, me... mosquito. Stuck me with his needle good. I was talking with a fellow down at the office the other day... Now look at nicer, was... Scott. What's he doing? Tying his shoe. You're not going to give him a mark in your book just for that. Sure I am. Going to paste him upside the snoot for just tying his shoe? Sure. That's a strange world. Well, tell me the name of your organization again, Willie. I want to have it straight to tell people. The Virginia Avenue Area Sons of Patriotism Salvage Indemnity. The Virginia Avenue Area Sons of Patriotism Salvage Indemnity. That's right. It's nice. Which concludes another brief interlude at the small house halfway up in the next block. 
And don't forget to listen to Crisco's Vic and Save the next time. This is Ed Roberts speaking. This program came from Chicago. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Radio's home folks, Vic and Sade, from the wartime spring of 1942. You heard him here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. I don't know if they still refer to prize fighters as pugs, but my dictionary says the term is an abbreviation of pugilist. Me, I've always thought that it had to do with the similarity of some veteran fighters to those wrinkle-faced dogs. Either derivation would work for the title of an episode called The Big Pug from May 18, 1950, a time when you had to take photographs on film and then get the film developed. It's the NBC series Dragnet. The story you're about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to robbery detail. An elderly woman on her way to the bank has been robbed and beaten senseless. The suspects are cruel, ruthless. Your job, get them. the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Saturday, August 9th. It was hot in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of robbery detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Walker, captain of robbery. My name's Friday. It was 10.14 a.m. when I got to room 27A. Robbery detail. Hi. Hi. Hello, Joe. Hi, Wynn. How is he? Won't know for a while. What did that say? Thinks the dog picked up some kind of poison food. Oh, it's too bad. Sure hot. You got a penny? Yeah. Yeah, there you are. Thank you. Somebody poisoned, huh? Yeah. That's what the vet says. I never could figure why some people poison dogs. I don't understand some people not liking animals, but I can't see why they poison food and then just toss it around wholesale loss. You know how I feel about that dog of mine. If anything happens to him, I don't know what I'll do. Oh, he'll be all right. Those vets can do wonders these days. I sure hope so. They told me to check back with him about noon. Yeah. I'm about to melt in this heat. Yeah. Doesn't seem to be any air at all. Well, tomorrow's Sunday. Guess I'll just lie out in the backyard. It's going to be good to just loaf around and read the Sunday papers, huh? It's a hot shot. I'll take it. My wife wants me to get out and get a little color. She says I'm better looking with a tan. She ought to know. All right. Where will you get married, Joe? After so long, it gets so you believe everything they tell you. Here's one to roll on. Yeah? Robbery and shooting. Victim's car was stolen. You want to get on it? All right. Let's go, Joe. Bank job. Don't make any plans for Sunday. 10.53 a.m. Ben and I pulled up in front of the Union Trust and Savings Bank at Melrose and Logan. We made our way through the usual crowd that was milling in and around the bank. We spoke with a manager, a Mr. Bill Four. 
He told us that he didn't see the actual robbery. The victim was taken in the parking lot next to the bank. Her name was Myrtle Shaw, a longtime customer of the Union Trust and Savings. Four told us that she always did her banking at the same time each day, around 10 in the morning when the bank first opened. He said she was the proprietor of Myrtle's Cafe, four doors west of the bank. Let us through, please. Sorry, let us through here. Officer, over here. Yes, sir. Friday in Romero, Central Robbery. Did you answer the call? Yes, we did. Freeman and Welsh, unit 13R. Ambulance just left. Bacon didn't want to go to Georgia Street. Said she wanted her own doctor. Okay, is she inside the cafe? Yeah. Let's go in, Ben. Are you Freeman? No, I'm Welsh. Freeman's inside. See if you can clear this crowd a little, will you, Welsh? Right. Thank you. All right, you've seen everything now. Come on, let's move along. Come on. Black and the There she is, over in the last booth. Freeman? Yes, sir. Friday and Romero, Central Robbery. Is this the victim? Yes, that's right. Her name's Myrtle Shaw. Miss Shaw? Yes, that's right. My name's Romero. This is Sergeant Friday. We're from Robbery Division downtown. You men detectives? Yes, ma'am. We'd like to ask you a few questions. Yes, all right. I hope you can catch the man that did this. Well, we're going to do all we can. It's a little hard for me to talk. My face is so swollen. It hurt something terrible. What happened? One of them struck me. Yes, ma'am, we know that. Do you want to tell us how it happened? And I was on my way to the bank. I drove in the parking lot there next door. Yeah? I just got out of my car when these men walked over to me. You're only four doors from the bank. Do you always drive such a short distance? No, no. I just picked up my car from Edgar's fill-in station. I haven't greased once a month. I see. Where was I? You'd just driven into the parking lot when these men walked up oh, to you. yes. Oh, yes. Well, one of them said, just hand over the money and there won't be any trouble. The other one said, this is a gun in my pocket, Grandma. Yeah. My head's splitting. Did someone call Dr. Van Hale? Yes, ma'am. He's on his way. Oh, thank you. Well... I carry my day's receipts in a cloth bank bag. I had it in my purse, and I wasn't sure if they knew I had any money. Yeah. I told them I didn't have any. And I was going in to draw some out, and one of the men said, Look, old-timer, we don't want to get rough. Just hand it over. We know you got it. What'd you do? Well, I turned and started to walk away, and I saw this one man's arm flash out of his pocket, and then something hard like a rock struck me on the side of the face. Must have slugged you with his gun. Oh, yes. It couldn't have been his hand. I don't think he could have cut my face like this with his hand. You should have let them take you to the emergency hospital. No. No, I don't want to go in the ambulance. I want my own doctor. He'll know what to do. Ambulance crew gave her first aid. She wouldn't let him take her. Mm Mm-hmm. Thanks. Miss Shaw, would you know the men if you ever saw them again? Well, I think so, yes. One of them looked like the worst kind of a hoodlum. And then they got your money, huh? Oh, yes. And they tell me they got away with my car, too. How much money did you lose? $116.23. Do you own this cafe? Yes, I do. It's a small place, as you can see. I do all the cooking and serving up to 11.30 in the morning. Then I have a college girl that waits on tables in the afternoon and evening. Do you think those men have ever been in here in the cafe? No. Have you ever no. seen either of them no. before? No, I never laid eyes on them before today. How about the girl who works for you? You think she's ever seen them before? I don't know. You can ask her. She should be here soon. What time is it now? Mm, 11.20. Yes, she'll be along any minute. 
Oh, I wish there was something to stop this aching. We know you must have a lot of pain, Miss Shaw, but we've got to ask a few more questions so we can get right on this. Yeah, I understand. I'll tell you all I can. All right. Ben, do you want to get the dope on the stolen car and a description of the man? I'll call the office. All right. Say, is there a payphone I can use here, Miss Shaw? Yes. Right over there behind the phone. Thank you. Do you need change? Yes, ma'am, I'm afraid I do. Well, just help yourself in the cash register there. Thank you. Put in a dime, taking out two nickels. Oh, well, now, that wasn't necessary, young man. You didn't have to tell me. Well, I know, but we don't like to open other people's cash registers. You're a police officer, aren't you? Yes, ma'am. I trust you. That seems to be the reason a lot of people don't. I called the office, and as fast as Ben repeated the information, I phoned it in. The detailed information was broadcast to all units. The stolen car was a 1946 green Ford sedan, license number 1X-Ray 1898. All units were instructed to be on the lookout for the car and if found abandoned, to notify robbery detail immediately and keep the car under surveillance until we arrived. I called in a description of the suspects and the fact that the money was taken in a cloth bag stamped Union Trust and Savings. Myrtle Shaw's doctor arrived and she was ordered to bed for rest and treatment. Ben and I interrogated all the possible witnesses in the parking lot and we found only one man who saw the actual robbery. His story compared to that of Miss Shaw's, but he could add nothing more. We talked with a young college student who worked in the restaurant. She didn't think she'd ever seen the men in question. We drove back to the city hall and went to the stats office. They made a run for us on the descriptions and M.O. that we had, and we pulled the packages of all possible suspects that the machine sorted out. We narrowed and sifted the 24 possibles down to 12. We took the mug shots out and showed them to the victim and the one witness. They could not identify any of them as the two men in the holdup. 2.35 p.m. Saturday... We started to canvas the neighborhood, door to door. That takes care of Logan Street for one block, both sides. Want to start here on Melrose? Okay. Let's try this drugstore. I'm on fire. Paper says it's supposed to hit 99 today. I believe it. Come on. Yes, sir? Police officers, we're looking for a couple of men. Here's the descriptions. I wonder if you'd read this and tell us if you've ever seen them. Yes, sir. We've got time to have a coat. No, we better not. It's getting late. No, I'm afraid I've never seen anybody who answers either one of these descriptions. You sure? Yeah, quite sure. Thank you. I have to have that back. Oh. Let's go. Is it just my imagination, or does it seem to be getting hotter to you? Talking about it doesn't help. I've tried ignoring it. That don't help neither. Let's try this bakery. How do you do, gentlemen? Hi, police officers. Wonder if you'd read the two descriptions listed here and tell us if you've ever seen either of these men. Yes, of course. No. Sure smells good in here, doesn't it? No, I don't seem to recall anybody. It looks like this. Anybody else in here who might have seen them? No, I don't think so. I wait on trade. Okay, thank you, ma'am. Let's go. That smells just like good old apple pie, doesn't it, Joe? We're baking Danish coffee cake at the moment. Oh. The next place here is a plastic factory. Yeah, looks like they're closed. Half day Saturday again. Somebody in there cleaning up. Guess he didn't hear me. Oh, here it comes. Yeah. A lot of money in this plastics business. Mm-hmm. Really came into its own during the war, didn't it? Oh, yeah. 
plants closed Saturday afternoon. Saturday afternoon. We talked with hotel managers, janitors, and cleanup men at the different factories or business establishments. We checked grocery stores, private homes, everywhere that we could find anybody to show the descriptions to. By 6.15 p.m., the only person who showed any sign of recognition of the two hold-up men was still Seth Williamson, the janitor at the plastics plant. Before we took time out for a sandwich and a cup of coffee, we drove back to the city hall to check the office. What do you say, Marty? A couple messages for you here. Thanks. What's the matter with you, Romero? I'm dehydrated. That sun almost fried me. Well, Joe, that one call there's from your mother. Said tell you a dog's out of danger. Oh, that's fine. Called in around two, huh? Yeah. That other one's from some guy who says he wants to talk to you right away. Been calling in since about three this afternoon. Seth Williamson, huh? Called four times. Yeah. Said tell you he'd wait at that number there. They heard from you. I'll call him right now. Been hot downtown, boy? Pretty warm, yeah. Any kickback on that stolen car? No, not yet. Manson Plastics? This is Sergeant Friday, Police Department. Oh, yes, I'm glad you called me back. I think I've got a little more information for you. Yeah? Those two fellas you were looking for, did you find them? No, not yet. Well, I just remembered what they were doing out back there in the parking lot. Yeah? They were taking pictures. Of what? How were they dressed? The blonde had on a white shirt of some kind and a black dress. That's all I can tell you for sure. Who was taking the pictures? First the fellas took the girls' picture, and then the girls took snapshots of the fellas. Thank you very much, Mr. Williamson. Oh, it'll help you. Yes, sir, it will. Goodbye. Goodbye. What do you got? They've had their pictures taken. Yeah? Let's find the prints. listening to Dragnet. Ben and I figured if we could possibly turn up the photographs that had been taken, we'd have something more definite to go on. We still had a lot of doubts. Maybe the janitor, Seth Williamson, was wrong. Maybe there were no pictures. If the snapshots had been taken, maybe they were still on the camera, undeveloped. With any kind of fast service and processing, the photos could have been picked up by now. We figured it was worth the chance and the time involved to check the lead out. All we had was the victim's scant description of the two hold-up men, and if we could possibly turn up pictures, it'd help a great deal. If Williamson was right, we'd have another lead, the two girls. 6.40 p.m., we started checking drugstores, going through all prints that had not yet been picked up by the customers. We'd made the rounds of all the drugstores in the neighborhood earlier in the day, but we double-checked the descriptions of the two men with the personnel in each store. By 9 p.m., we checked out 10 drugstores and found nothing. We were going on the hunch that the photos would most likely be dropped off for processing somewhere in the immediate neighborhood. It was only a hunch, and we were running out of drugstores. Police business. We'd like to go through your photos that have been left for developing. Yes, sir. Here's the box right here. Oh, thank you. I'll take half. Not very many this time, huh? Oh, don't forget to check the negatives, too. Sometimes they don't print them if they're bad. Yeah, I know. One. People sure take a lot of pictures of babies, don't they? Yeah. Nothing. These are sure fuzzy. Pictures of the zoo. Pictures of Yellowstone. 
fader it, maybe. Let me see. Two guys. Two girls. One's a blonde, white blouse, dark skirt. Look close. Let us see. Left by a Marion Lang, 223 East Bexel. Oh, Claire. Yes, sir? You want to double-check us on this envelope? Yes, sir. This date and time right here, 3.30 p.m. August 6th? Uh, yes, that's correct. That's when the films were left for processing. Three days before the robbery. Did you ever see this woman in the picture before? Let me see. This one? Oh, yes. Yeah, she comes in here quite often. Miss Lang is her name. How about these men or this other girl here? No, no, I've never seen them. When were these prints supposed to be picked up? I waited on her. She told me she'd pick them up Friday, yesterday. Well, we'll have to take these photos along with us. They'll be returned. All right, sir. How will I explain this to Miss Lang? If this is the right address, you won't have to. Before we left, we called the office and had a stakeout place in the drugstore in case Marion Lang tried to pick up the photos. We checked the address she gave on the envelope, 223 East Bixel. It was a small apartment building near the corner. The manager told us that Marion Lang had moved out the morning of August 9th, the day of the robbery. She left no forwarding address. The manager knew nothing of the other girl or the men in the photos. We checked with Myrtle Shaw, the victim. She positively identified the two men as the ones who robbed and slugged her. She knew nothing of the two girls. Hadn't seen them before. We put out a warrant on Marion Lang and gave the photos to Lieutenant Frank Cunningham and the record bureau. Monday morning, August 11th. Morning, Frank. Hello, Morris. Any record on the guys? Nothing we could find, no. I'm having copies sent out right now. Kind of thought maybe if we came up with pictures, we'd be halfway home. Maybe we are. How do you mean? I had Tony make some blow-ups from the negatives. Full of grain. Probably taken with a cheap box camera of some kind, but it might help. What'd you find? I just checked the enlargements. They were still in the wash, but I think we got something. Let's go over the photocopy. All right. Sixteen by twenty enlargements made. This will show you what I found. Yeah. You guys take a good look at the face of this this one man here. Thought we did. Why? It's pretty hard to see on those small prints. Look here. You see the nose on this one? Mm-hmm. I'd guess it's been broken one time or another, wouldn't you? Yeah. Hmm. You see here? Scar over the left eye, scar over the right eye. A couple of them. Yeah. Look at the right ear. See how mashed it is? Hmm. We couldn't come up with any names for you, but how better to be safe to guess his line of work? Looks like a prize fighter. Nothing in the oddity file. I checked and double-checked everything I could lay my hands on here in the department. I don't place him if he was a boxer of any standing. I don't recall. Isn't much. <laughs> Wish I had something else for you. It's a lead, isn't it? Might be. More than we had. It was possible that one of the two hold-up men in the photos could have been a professional fighter. From his appearance and build, we felt it was a fair guess. We took copies of the snapshots to the State Boxing Commission, Los Angeles branch. We spoke with a Mr. Farmer, who couldn't seem to recall the man from his picture. We went over the description that the victim had given us. Farmer said that he knew a great many of the fighters because at one time or another they all check in and out of the commission before a bout. But the man in the snapshot remained unidentified. He checked through several hundred cards bearing the photographs of boxers in the files. No luck. 
Farmer suggested that we try the Spring Street gym where the out-of-town fighters get into shape and the boxers in town train. We left him a copy of the photograph and our card so that he could continue checking back through his file. It was 10.22 a.m. when we got to the Spring Street gym. Here's the manager's office. Come in. You the boss here? Yeah. What can I do for you? Police officers. Yeah. We're looking for a man we think might be a fighter. I wonder if you can help us out. Sure try. I'm Sergeant Friday. This is my partner, Ben Romero. Hi. My name's Charlie Coleman. Here's a couple of photographs for you to look at, Mr. Coleman. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen this fellow on the right? Uh, let's see. Uh, let's walk over by the window, get a little light on him. Wait a minute. Uh, uh, used to work out here all the time a couple of years back. Uh, name is Billy. Uh, Marshall, yeah, that's right. One of them named Billy the Kid Marshall. Is he still around? Oh, gee, I couldn't tell you. It's been a good two years since I've seen him up here. Any idea of where we might locate him? I doubt it. Used to be a Benny Farber stable. Benny's been to East now over a year. Uh, let me check back through my locker listings. Maybe I still got something on it. Out cards, yeah, that's what we want. Let's take them over here by the window where we can read them. As I recall, Marshall wasn't much of a fighter. Father nursed him up through the prelims, got him in the semi-wind-ups. He started hitting the bottle. Played the dames. Oh, yeah, here we are. Can I see that, please? Oh, sure. Here we are. Billy the Kid. Big, beefy boy. Real sucker for right cross. 1637 Carver Avenue. That's the last address you got on him? Whatever the card says, yeah. Real sucker for the old right cross. Thank you very much, Mr. Coleman. You're welcome, boys. Anytime. What's he done? We just want him for questioning. Oh, I see. If you should hear from him, don't tell him we're looking for him. Let's go. Thanks again. Uh, what do you think he did wrong? I don't know. How do you block a right cross? We called the new information into Captain Walker, and he sent a crew of men to the boxing commission to check further. 1637 Carver Avenue. It was a cheap rooming house on the west side of town. Marshall hadn't lived there for over a year and a half. The landlady gave us a forwarding address. The next place hadn't seen him for a year. We kept checking and rechecking, going from one end of town to the other. Each place was a little better than the last. It was easy to trace Billy the Kid's rise in the fight game, such as it was, by the condition of the places he lived in. We covered six different rooming houses, boarding houses, and apartments. Each time, his residence had been a little more recent. 5.15 p.m., Monday, August 11th. We pulled up in front of the Sunflower Hotel, 433 Banyan Street. Rates, $2 a week and up. Nobody at the desk. I'll ring the bell. How do you do? Police officers. Have you got a Billy Marshall registered here? No, no one by that name here. You take a look at this picture. Either one of these men live here. Oh, sure, that's Tom Green and George Martin, room nine. They in now? I could buzz their room and see. No, never mind. Room nine, you said. Yes, sir, that's right. Let's go. Special delivery letter. Slip it out of the door. You have to sign for it. 
All right, stand still, police officer. Watch it, Ben. Take the other one, Tom. Watch it, Ben. All right, hold it right there, Marshal. Get over there against the wall. You, get up. Over there with him. Move. Give me a hand, Joe. I'll help you up. You all right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm okay. There he is, Joe. Looks like his picture fits the description. Except for one thing. Yeah? He's no sucker for a right cross. just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On March 27, 1947, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 81, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Both William Marshall and his accomplice were found guilty of armed robbery and grand theft auto and are now serving their terms as prescribed by law. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Fatima Cigarettes, the best of all long cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet transcribed from Los Angeles. Screen Directors presents Lucille Ball as Miss Grant tomorrow on NBC. The Big Pug, an episode of Dragnet from the spring of 1950 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Errold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pierog and Mike Kidd are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, in HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. We're hearing about gold tonight, the lust for it, and how it changes people. What better vehicle for examining the turns our lives might take than that champion of the twist ending, the Whistler? We're going to hear an early episode of that long-running series from July 2nd, 1943, before the show had really hit its stride. Among other things, you'll notice a different opening, a different voice of the Whistler himself, and an ending that's narrated rather than dramatized. But it's still scary, and it's still... The Whistler. Have you heard the strange tales of The Whistler? too real. This is what I've been afraid of. I know you don't believe me. You you think I'm insane, both of you. Friday night and CBS presents The Whistler. I, The Whistler, know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales. Many secrets hidden in the hearts of men and women who stepped into the shadows. And so I tell you tonight the weird story of the Avengers. 
In the great southwest, a range of high mountains extends as far as the eye can see. This is mining country, silver and gold. Halfway down the mountain is a tiny village, the mining town of Rainbow, a raucous sort of place composed of a number of stores, many saloons and the federal land office where the fortune hunters file their claims. Fifteen years ago, Rainbow was a rip-roaring village. And in a back room of the Crystal Palace Bar, a young man and a young woman hold an earnest conversation. Tell me, Miss Martin, how long have you been in this town? Oh, about two years. Came here from Kansas City. And you know my brother, John Maddox? Well, I certainly do. How well do you know him? Hmm, well enough. He came out here a year ago, and he's been hiding out up on the mountainside ever since. Got a cabin up there. Prospecting, of course. Who isn't? How well do you know him? Oh, he used to come into town quite often. I got acquainted with him in here. First, I fell for him in a big way, but he seemed to resent it. Finally, he gave me the cold shoulder. Well, he has a wife and a five-year-old daughter back east. Mm, that's what he said, but I didn't believe him. He's a bit nutty, isn't he? Nutty? No, I wouldn't say nutty. He's a smart boy. He's an engineer. Graduate of the State School of Mines. He is? Well, what's he doing here, living like a hermit? I wonder. So he gave you the cold shoulder, huh? He certainly did. Well, John is an educated mineralogist. He came out here to make a strike. And if anyone does, he should be that one. Maybe he's located a vein of ore. What do you have on your mind, Mr. Maddox? Well, I thought maybe you'd seen him visiting the Sayers office a little more often than usual. And what if I have? Or the land office? Go on, Mr. Maddox. Well, I wouldn't be interested in knowing the activities of an ordinary prospector. But a graduate mining engineer like John... Well, he may have a lead on something good. Yes. And I thought, that is, I heard, you might be more or less familiar with his activities. That's right. I am. And maybe you'd like to uh, come in with me. What do you mean? You know where he's been working. You know the area he's most interested in, so if you let me know, I'll beat him to it. We'll split. Split? That's right. How about it? Sure. Why not? You know, I think I'm going to like you, Mr. Maddox. Frank is the name, Mel. All right, Frank. This is it. He has found a spot. It didn't mean much to me until now, but he's been working on the same location for a week or more. I'm sure he's hit something. Good. That's all I wanted to know. I'll just drop in and surprise him. <laughs> See you later, Mother. See you later, partner. And so that night, John Maddox is working on some maps and papers. The meager lamp throws a dim light about the room. For an hour, he sits at the table. Then suddenly, the silence is shattered by a sound from the kitchen. Who's there? Come out of there. Come on. What are you doing here? What do you want? Nothing. How long have you been in that kitchen? Why? So you're the little thief that's been stealing my things, huh? What are you after this time? Nothing. I know who you are. You're Tony Watson. So what? Just this. You're the one who pinched my camera, my binoculars. Yes, and several other things. I didn't know. And I'm turning you over to the sheriff right now. Sheriff? No, I didn't take him. I didn't. I didn't steal anything, but... But what? I know who did. Well, you little liar. You're the one. And believe me, you're caught on the job this time, and I'll... Uh, just a minute. Sheriff. I didn't. I didn't. Hey, I hey, didn't. come back here. Why, that little devil... Just a second. Well? Hello, John. Frank. That's right, your brother Frank himself. Come in. What do you want? What are you doing here? Oh, just dropped in town. Thought I'd see how you were doing. Getting along all right. 
But you might like to hear about your wife and your daughter. Is that why you came here? Your wife is very well. Your daughter's just five years old today. I'm still wondering how you're getting along and when you're going to send for them. I know all about that. I'm going to send for them very soon. Are you? All going to live in this little shack? Certainly not. There's something a lot better by the time they arrive. Will you? Oh. Didn't have a dime when you left. Yeah, thanks to you and your lies. I know who's responsible for father's cutting me off with only a dollar. You. Have you struck pay dirt here, John? No. Hmm. What are all these interesting papers and maps on the table? Nothing. Oh, but they must mean something. Get away from that table. Let them alone. Put up your hands and stand if back. If you touch those papers... Get back there. Uh-huh. Interesting. So you have struck something. All ready to be recorded. Frank, if you dare, I'll kill you. What do you think I came here? Oh, you Don't dirty. worry, I'll settle up later. I'll see you get a share. My wife and my daughter, Doreen, they haven't a cent. I've not been able to give them anything in months. You can't do this. Do what? You put those papers down, Frank, or I'll break your dirty neck. You'd better stay where you are. Oh, no, I'll kill you first. I'll kill you. John, you're crazy. Keep back. Keep away. You crazy fool. I told you I'd shoot. You're the fool, Frank. You're the fool. You won't get away with this. I'll see to that. You'll pay, Frank. I'm not through with you yet. You and everyone, everything you hold dear will, will be taken away. You will pay it back, Frank. To me and, and mine. If, if I have to climb out of my grave. John. John. Frank stands for a moment, then stuffs the papers and maps into his pocket and rushes to the door and into the night. A few seconds later, a face, a face at the window, disappears and suddenly reappears through the back door. And the boy stands looking at the inert figure on the cabin floor. Huh. Serves him right. You won't tell the sheriff anything about me now. Fifteen years have passed, and now the little mining village of Rainbow is a thriving city of mines and smelters. And the richest mine of all is the one owned by Frank Maddox. And Frank Maddox rules the city. Frank is married now and has a child, a girl of five. The child has been ill for days. And tonight, as Frank Maddox steps to the door, his wife meets him with a strange, vacant stare. Melba, what's happened? How is she? She's... She's... Oh, Frank. All those doctors, and they couldn't save her. No. They said you didn't have a chance. They did their best. Fools, what good are they? What are they paid for? They don't even know what was wrong with her. No, Frank. But, well, whatever it was, it was horrible. She she died in agony. Specialists. I told them they could name their own price. The sky was the limit. It didn't seem to make any difference. Oh, that poor little thing, that poor baby. It didn't seem to be anything serious at first. It was just a week ago... She was sitting at her desk, drawing pictures, and then all of a sudden she started to gasp for breath and fell to the floor in a faint. Yes, yes, I know. And then she lapsed into a coma. Oh, Frank. Frank, what was it? Why? Darling, I couldn't think. What is it? I... I... I can't get my breath. Here, drink this. I, Frank, I didn't want to tell you, but I'm frightened. I've had it for several hours. It's just like the baby. The same thing. The baby and now you. I know what it is. It's him. It's John. John? Your brother? Yes, I knew this was going to happen. John told me. But John's dead. The night the baby took sick, I saw him in a dream. He told me something was going to happen to us, and last night I saw him again. 
He was grinning and laughing. He told me that... Told you what? He told me that he'd finally reached through to me, that he'd finally made contact. That's crazy. He said tomorrow would be a sad day for me. Today. But it's a dream. I know, I know, but he, he said something else. He said that now his wife was dead, that the sooner I made things right with his daughter, Doreen, the better. Frank, that's nonsense. No, no, there must be something to it. I'll find the girl. I'll get her down here. I'll try to fix things up. Maybe, maybe that'll stop all this. Frank, please, please use your head. It was a dream. I've got to find that girl. I'll, I'll send Anthony to find her. I'll explain the whole thing to him. He can find her. But why tell him about it? Well, he's my assistant. I confide in him. He'll find her. Very well, then. Tell Anthony. Tell him to find her and bring her here. Because if you... Frank. Melba. Melba, darling. Please find that girl. Doreen. Frank Maddox carries his stricken wife to her room and calls the doctor. The next day, he explains in a way to his young assistant, Anthony Watson. Anthony rushes to the east to locate Doreen Maddox, and needless to say, he does. Before she knows what it's all about, she's aboard the train with young Anthony. Didn't you even know you had an Uncle Frank? Oh, yes, of course. But I didn't know much about him. When did your mother die, Doreen? Five years ago. She, um... Well... She committed suicide. What became of your father? Oh, he went west to prospect for gold or silver or something. But he got into trouble. Someone shot him, and that's all I know about it. Has your Uncle Frank ever offered to help you? No, not that I know of. Mother never mentioned it, if he did. He's a very rich man, you know, and, as I've told you, very ill. Ill? Well, he's sort of mentally ill, as well as physically. Oh? Doreen, are you... That is... Well, a girl as lovely as you should be engaged or in love. <laughs> but I'm not. You're not? Really? No. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> I can't believe it. Well, it's the truth. Whether you believe it or not. Oh, I believe you. And, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. So you see, Doreen, I'd completely lost track of you. I've wondered about you and your mother since the tragic death of your father. Mother died several years ago, Uncle. Yes, I should have attempted to locate you long ago. Should you? Yes, you're my brother's child. It was my duty to look after you. See that you want for nothing. Oh, but I've been getting along all right. I've not been well, Doreen. I've been quite ill lately. I've been terribly upset, my nerves. Perhaps you've been working too hard. No, no, it isn't that. Doreen, I, I'd like you to stay here. Make this your home. I have a check for you, a little present, $5,000. No, please, Uncle, that isn't necessary. You must accept it, Doreen, you must. I don't need it. I'll be glad to stay here with you until you're better. But really, I don't know what I'd do with 5000 I'd feel better if you accepted it, and perhaps your father would... Father would what? Doreen, I must tell you, I've got to tell you, it's, it's driving me mad. John is trying to, to kill me. Oh. Uncle, father's been dead for years. I know, I know, but he died hating me. Hating you? He blamed me for his having been cut off with only a dollar in our father's will. But he was wrong, and... Well, now he's trying to kill me. Well, I can't believe such a thing. I have horrible nightmares. John appears to me, always threatening me. He came to me the night my little daughter became ill, and then after she died. He came again when my wife was stricken, and said that after she was gone, it would be my turn. But that's just your imagination, Uncle. Well, get it out of your mind. I can't. I'm afraid to go to sleep. 
You only see him in your dreams? Yes, but each time he comes nearer, closer, more real. Oh, it isn't just imagination. I'm afraid that one of these days I'll... I'll see him when I'm not asleep. And you think my being here will help matters? Is that it? Yes. If he knows you're here, that I'm taking care of you and have your welfare at heart, perhaps... Well, perhaps he'll let me alone. Prove to him that he judged you wrongly? Yes. I must make him understand. I can't go on this way. I'm a physical wreck. I'm, a... I'm afraid my mind will snap. I understand, Uncle. I'll try to help you. But you must try to get this off your mind. Yes, yes, I'll try. You'd better go to bed now, Uncle. Please, take the check. Very well. Good night. An hour passes, and in spite of himself, Frank drops into a fretful sleep. He moans and tosses about, and as usual, he dreams of John again. Sees him come through the wall and stand in the center of the room. You won't get away with it, Frank. Everything and everyone you hold dear will be taken away. You'll pay it back, Frank, to me and mine. No. No. Let me alone. Anthony. Doreen. Doreen. Uncle. Uncle, what is it? What's happened? Doreen, he, he was here just now. I saw him. I, I heard him laughing. But, Mr. Maddox, that isn't possible. I heard him, I tell you. You could hear his laugh all over the house. I heard nothing, Uncle. Not a sound. I woke up, I tell you. I heard him. But, Uncle, you must have been dreaming. Well, I haven't been asleep since I left you. I've been reading. I didn't hear a sound. You? You didn't hear anything, really? No, not a sound. You, Anthony? I heard nothing. You were just dreaming. No, no, it was too real. This is what I've been afraid of. I know you don't believe me. You think I'm insane. Uncle, please. Yes, Maybe I am. Come, Anthony. No, no, Doreen. Don't go, don't go, please. But, Uncle, there's nothing I can do. It's up to you. You must convince yourself that it's all imagination. Good night, Uncle. And then the next night comes, and Frank dreams again the same frightful dream. John appears repeats the same words and laughs in the same way. Frank is wide awake now, shaking with fear, and all the while trying to convince himself that it's only his imagination. Then the bedroom door opens suddenly. Doreen steps into the room. Her face is white with fear. She trembles as she moves slowly toward the bed. Uncle. Uncle. Doreen, what is it? What's wrong? Uncle, I... Just now, I heard something. What? Doreen, what did you hear? I must have been dreaming. I must have. But it was so clear. Your father? Yes. Yes, I heard him. And he was laughing. Then if you heard him, it must be true. He has come back. Oh, did, did you hear it too? Yes. Yes, he was here in this room. What did he say to you? I, I can't remember. I, I was so frightened. But I heard him. And that laughed. Now you believe me. Now, now you know I'm not imagining things. Oh, I don't know. I, I'm so frightened. I don't know what to think. I can't stay here any longer. I've got to leave. I can't stay another night. Oh, Doreen, please, don't go. Not yet. I promise that you'll stay t just a while longer. Please. But, Uncle, I... All right, I'll try. I'll stay. Then 
Then comes the next night, another dreadful night of horror. Frank tries his best to control his mounting fear as evening passes and midnight comes. He fights sleep, the sleep that brings him nothing but horrifying dreams and the voice of John. But finally, he can hold out no longer, and his eyes close. A half hour goes by, then... Frank. Frank. You're not asleep, Frank. You're wide awake, and this is real. John, what do you want? Tell me, I'll do it. I'll do anything. I told you you'd pay. Everything and everyone dear to you would be taken away. At this very moment, your wife is dying, Frank. First your daughter, now your wife. And then you. John, please, I'll do anything. Then sit down at that table and write. Write a will. Everything to the one it belongs to. My daughter, Doreen. Yes, yes, I'll do it. And a confession, Frank. Confession? A confession that you came to my cabin that night and killed me. Oh, no, I can't, John. You can and you will. They'll, they'll hang me. They won't hang you. No? So write the will and the confession. Yes, but I'm afraid that... They won't hang you. Because in just one minute, you will be dead. John, Hurry, no. Frank. You haven't much time to save your soul. You're going to have a stroke, Frank. In just a minute, you'll feel a sudden beating of your temples. A stroke is what they'll call it. And you'll be dead. Hurry. Yes, I'll write it. I will. Your conscience will be clear, Frank. And that'll be best for you, I know. I said I'd reach you if I had to crawl out of my grave. There, there it is. Now, please leave me alone, Frank. Please, please. Too late, Frank. You're going back with me. Look at the clock. Fifteen seconds left. Now it's starting. Your head is beginning to whirl. Strange sounds beat in your ears. Faster. Faster. Do you hear? Yes, yes. Please don't, John. Five seconds. There it is. You're dying, Frank. This is the end. The end of Frank Maddox. No, 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 John. John. No, no, no. screaming. Anthony, I think he's... Feel his pulse. I... I can't find it. Not a trace. Anthony, is he... I don't know. He's had a stroke, I think. I'll call the doctor. Yes, I'll have to go after him. His car is out of order. Come on. It may be too late for the doctor, but we'd better get him anyway. Use this phone and tell him I'll be there in a few minutes. Doctor. What happened to him? I think he had a stroke. Hmm. Uh, a stroke, eh? Well. Hmm. We heard him screaming, and when we got here, he was unconscious. Well, he's dead. But he didn't have a stroke. What? You can see for yourself. He's been stabbed in the heart. You don't need me. You want the police. You say, miss, that you heard your uncle screaming? I did. What did it seem to be, a scream of pain? No, no, I couldn't make out what it was. But it sounded as though he was horribly frightened. It seemed as though he was pleading with someone. Did you hear him, Anthony? Yes, it sounded just as Doreen said, as though someone or something were after him. What do you mean by something? Well, I just use that as a form of expression. And when you reached him, he was on the floor, unconscious? That's right. Was he dead? We didn't know. I couldn't find any pulse, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. That's why I went for the doctor. And you didn't notice the knife wound in his chest? No. Did you see it, miss? No. It may have been there, but 
I didn't notice it. Are you sure he didn't have a stroke, Doctor? Positive. He may have had a collapse, fainted, but there was no stroke. He died from this stab in the heart. What sort of instrument would you say was used? Well, I'd say a long, thin knife about a half inch wide. Like a letter opener? Yes, sort of a stiletto. Doctor, had you been treating Mr. Maddox lately for any particular ailment? Well, I've been attending him frequently of late. What was troubling him? I don't know. Oh, you don't know. Are you sure? Well, I couldn't find any definite physical trouble, but he was becoming terribly run down. Seemed to get worse each day. He couldn't eat nor sleep. Extremely nervous. Hypertension. I gave him sedatives and tonics, but they seemed to do no good, so I finally came to the conclusion that it was mental. Mental? What do you mean? I think he developed some sort of phobia, a fear. What I was never able to determine. In time, it would have resulted in insanity and finally death. Or perhaps a stroke and death. But in this case, it was not a stroke. You've been attending his wife? Yes. What is her ailment? Carcinoma. But she doesn't know it. There's nothing more I can do for her, except alleviate the pain. Miss Maddox, from the tone of your uncle's screams, would you say that there was some person in the room with him at the time? Yes. And no. Yes and no? What does that mean? I mean, he may have thought someone was here with him. May have thought someone was with him? Yes, that is... Well, from all appearances, there was someone with him. The someone who stabbed him. Anthony, was Miss Maddox in this room when you came in? No, we met in the hall and came in together. Uh, neither of you saw the knife wound. I'm sure I didn't. Doreen, you just said that he may have thought someone was here in this room. What do you mean? Well, he was afraid of... Afraid of what? Afraid of who? Afraid of my father. What? Why, your father's been dead 15 years. Yes, yes, but that's just it. I may as well tell you. He was afraid my father was trying to kill him. That's what was wrong with him, why he couldn't sleep. Oh, bosh, now it's spooks. No, no, he said that father appeared to him every night and threatened him. Threatened him? Well, all right, so he threatened him. Why? He said father hated him, that father thought Uncle Frank had caused him to lose his inheritance. Well, doctor, you think that's what was wrong with Frank? Could have been. Quite possible. All right, I'll grant you that. But no spook produced that knife wound. Doreen, do you believe that your father lost his inheritance because of your uncle? No. No, I do not. Are you sure? I'm sure father did not lose his part of the estate because of Uncle Frank. Are you sure? Could you prove that? Well, no, no, I couldn't. But I never heard father mention it. I never heard him accuse Uncle Frank. What brought you here? My uncle sent for me. Why? Because he was afraid of my father. He thought my being here might help matters. That's right, Captain. He sent me for Doreen. I located her and brought her here. Oh, me. Oh, my. This gets worse and worse. You know all about it, too, did you? Yes. Mr. Maddox confided in me. He had the idea that if Doreen were brought here and he showed good intentions toward her, that John would leave him alone. Oh, poor John. What a busy guy. It isn't funny. You said it. Frank Maddox has been murdered and it wasn't a spook. I know who did it and I know why. What are you talking about? Frank Maddox didn't send for her. She came here of her own accord and for a definite reason. She did not. I brought her here. You're lying. You're trying to cover up for her. I am not. Because you're in love with her. Anybody can see that. Well, what if I am in love with him? That doesn't have anything to do with this. Frank Maddox sent me for her. He did not. She knew that Frank was the cause of her father losing his inheritance. So she came here to kill him, and she did. Well, that doesn't make sense. Why would she kill him? What would she gain by that? Have a hair of revenge? If it hadn't been for Frank, her father would have been wealthy, and so would she. But she didn't know about her father's accusations until Frank Maddox told her himself. Oh, then you admit that she does know about it now. I knew nothing about it until Uncle Frank told me. But I still think father was wrong. Whether you knew about it before you came here or learned it after you got here, what's the difference? It's a motive. You stabbed him. You left the room and then you met Anthony in the hall. You stuck Miss Maddox and you haven't a chance. Wait. Wait a minute. Mrs. Maddox, don't come in here. And why not? Why shouldn't I come in here? You shouldn't get up. You... 
Well, you should... I know. I know all about it. I know what's happened. I've heard every word. You're... You're very ill, Mrs. Maddox. I know. I heard you. And now I know what's wrong with me. I know what carcinoma is, doctor. Please go back to bed. No. No, not just yet. I... Well, this girl, Doreen, you're wrong. She's innocent. She had nothing to do with it. That is, not directly. What do you mean, Mrs. Maddox? She didn't kill Frank. I did. You? She's perfectly innocent. Frank did send for her. He was afraid of John. He dreamed about him every night. He did think John was trying to reach him from, from the grave, trying to kill him. It was his imagination, I know, but he really believed it. And he had a good reason to believe it. What reason? I've heard Frank moaning and yelling for weeks and weeks. I heard him tonight. I came in here and found him on the floor. He'd made a will. This paper. Leaving everything to Doreen and explaining why. Oh. Sit down, Melba. Yes. Well, he came out of his faint. And I found this will. I went wild when I saw it. He tried to get it away from me. He said it had to be that way. We struggled for it. And I took the paper knife and stabbed him. I went back to my room, but I've been standing outside the door. I heard everything. Particularly what you said about me, Doctor. So what does it matter? This girl is innocent. What is this paper? Let's see it. I'll tell you what it says. It leaves everything Frank has to Doreen. And the reason why? Frank killed John. What? Yes. It was all my fault. I knew John had made a strike, and I told Frank about it. Frank went to John's cabin and killed him, took the maps and the papers and filed them a claim. I was the one responsible for everything. But it all rightfully belongs to Doreen. And now... Well, now that I've heard the doctor's sentence... What does it matter? Well, Doreen, that was lucky for you. Lucky that Melba was standing outside the door and heard the doctor. But oh, what I know about you, Doreen. You and Anthony. Anthony did bring you down here. But on the way, he fell madly in love with you. He told you about your uncle's fears. And so between the two of you, you decided to make his dreams more than real. Anthony arranged a little radio speaker in Uncle Frank's room. Yes, it was Anthony who spoke to Frank. Not John's voice from the grave. Anthony merely amplified Frank's dreams, yes. You and Anthony plan to work on Frank psychologically in order to get that will and the confession. But how did Anthony know the exact words to use? The words John used when he was dying that night in the cabin? Why, because Anthony was the little boy John caught in his cabin that night. The boy who heard every word said between Frank and John. The smart little boy who saw it all. (laughs) CBS has presented The Whistler. Original music for this production was composed and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. The Whistler is written and directed by J. Donald Wilson and originates from Columbia Square in Hollywood. Next week, same time, I, The Whistler, 
will return to tell you another unusual tale. Good night. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. From CBS in the summer of 1943, another in a series of strange tales by The Whistler. It came to you from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Next is a situation comedy that features two big movie and television stars, Irene Dunn and Fred McMurray. It's a short-lived show called Bright Star, in which they play a newspaper owner and her star reporter. One thing to listen for, the show's a good example of the differences between film acting and radio acting. See what you think of how Mr. McMurray and Ms. Dunn come across in this episode that, well, in keeping with our theme tonight, does have to do with black gold. Oh, and it features an actor who was good in all media as a heavy, and on Jack Benny's show as the racetrack tout, Sheldon Leonard. There are references to Horatio Alger, the author who celebrated honesty and hard work as the path to success, the Powhatan noblewoman, Pocahontas, the professional wrestler, Gorgeous George, and the silent screen heartthrob, Rudolph Valentino. From October 23, 1952, it's the Ziv syndicated series, Bright Star. The Irene Dunn, Fred McMurray Show. Starring Irene Dunn as Susan and Fred McMurray as George. Together in the gay new exciting comedy adventure, Bright Star. Have you heard what happened on the star? Did you hear what he said to her? You know what she told him? Yes, the whole town's talking. The star they're talking about is the morning star, a newspaper. The her they're talking about is Susan. Lovely, attractive, headstrong Susan. And the him? Well, you can see him right now walking down the street over there. Yes, and believe me, if he knew what was about to happen... (laughs) He wouldn't be whistling. Hey, Jack. Huh? Oh, you mean me? Yeah, yeah. You a reporter, writes pieces for the paper and stuff, ain't you? That's right. Uh Uh-huh. Well, let's step into this alley here, will you? I got an item for you. News, eh? Sure, sure. Right here's a good place. Yeah, the sun was kind of hot out there anyway. Yeah. Well, friend, what's this uh, item you've got? Well, it's strictly personal, chum. You, you've you been making inquiry around about concerning the guaranteed, always-flowing oil development company, huh? True, I have. Yeah, you've been saying like that company ain't on a level. Well, you might say I entertain certain doubts. Look, let's make it simple, eh, chum? You, you've been saying that you are going to print that stuff in the Hillsdale Morning Star. Those are my intentions. Yeah, well, the president of our company, Mr. Carter Gaston, he asked me to convince you otherwise. Mm-hmm. Print nothing but praise about our company, or I am going to see that you land in the obituary column. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fair warning, friend. But I think I should tell you that I used to be heavyweight champion at my college. Oh, you was a champion? Yeah. Don't believe me, eh? Well, yeah, sure, champ, sure. But 
Wonder just what college he went to. with the truck? I'll exchange witticisms with you later, Sammy. I want to see Miss Armstrong. Sure. Who doesn't? Susan, I've got something to say to you. I'm on the phone, George. Really, Mr. Gaston? No. No! But he just came in, Mr. Gaston, and I'll certainly talk to him. Not at all. Goodbye, and thank you for calling, Mr. Gaston. Susan, I've got something to say to you. George, really... Look at your suit. Well, suits get this way when they've been bounced around in the gutter. Occupants still inside. Oh? Oh, she says. Try to control your vast outpouring of sympathy, Miss Armstrong. About this phony oil outfit that everybody in town is falling for... I've just I... heard from Mr. Gaston, George. He told me how you assaulted that poor little salesman of his. He... he what? What made you do it, George? The sunspots. Now listen, Susan. I'm going to write an article blasting Gaston and his crooked outfit from here to... Just what proof have you? Well, I... Well, none. Yet. But I'll have... George, I know character. I've talked to Mr. Gaston over the phone. And from what Alderman Connolly tells me Alderman Connolly, he's as hard to bribe as a head waiter. I know character, George. Will you stop saying that? Shouting will not convince me. All right, all right. So we won't print anything. So Gaston sells his phony oil stock to the whole town. You happy? Do I have to remind you, George? That you're the editor, I know. No. That you inherited the paper from your father and did very nicely before I arrived. Granted. That I have a nasty, suspicious mind. I concur. Have I left out anything? Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know character. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Actually, George, you worry me with all your suspicions. Why don't you come to dinner tonight and we'll talk things over? Comfort. All right. But if you think you're going to bribe me with food, you're right. <laughs> Working late tonight, Mr. Harvey? Lift your feet, huh? Yeah. I'm just whiling away the time till 6.30, Sammy. Whiling away. Okay, put them down. You and the boss can live things up a little tonight? Miss Armstrong has been kind enough to invite me for a platonic dinner, yes. Ha! For one so young, Sammy, you have a very nasty ha. Ha! Miss Armstrong is interested in me only as a reporter. That phrase can have a very sad history, Mr. Harvey. Sweep your floor, Sammy. You know, you could be a success, Mr. Harvey... If you wanted to be. Your confidence touches me. Why don't you marry Miss Armstrong and, and let her take you out of all this? Thank you, Horatia Alger. Anytime. 6.15, Mr. Harvey. Oh, thanks. Oh, say, Sammy, you, you haven't got a couple of bucks for a box of chocolates, have you? There's a romantic imagination. Chocolates. Take her an orchid. A single rose. A single rose, huh? Sammy, have you uh, got a buck for a single rose? No. Well... That's time to go. Visitor, Mr. Harvey. Yeah, so I see. Good evening, boy reporters. Miss Armstrong here. What's it to you? What's it to you? I wish I'd said that. Gets things like that off all the time, this kid. You should hear him when he's hot. Stay off my side, Sammy. Miss Armstrong's not here, and she won't be back. Well, I don't blame her. Take a message. My boss, Mr. Gaston, he's a very big man in oil. He enjoyed talking to Miss Armstrong on the phone today. He wishes her to call on him at his hotel suite tomorrow. Can you remember all that, or should I write it down? Don't bother. Incidentally, chum, that was a pretty lucky punch you got in this afternoon. 
Well, it happens all the time. You think you could do it again? It figures. Mr. Harvey, the paper needs you. Stand aside, Sammy. This won't take long. All right, you. Poor Mr. Harvey. Wonder what else he learned in college. Mr. Harvey should be here in a minute. Everything's under control, Miss Armstrong. But I want things to be especially nice tonight, Patience. Mr. Harvey and I have been having, well, one of our disagreements. No. But he was quite nice about coming to dinner. Big of him. Let's see. He doesn't get paid until tomorrow. Was he nice or just weak from hunger? Now, George always speaks very well of you, Patience. And you're cooking, too. No fool, Georgie. What time is old freeloader due? About 6.30. I thought we might have a, a leisurely dinner and then retire to the music room later. Uh-huh. And then you just happen to wander over to the piano, hum a few bars of something romantic. Mm. You think that's too corny? George is a corny fellow. He might even bring his saxophone along. No, I think that's in Hawk. Well... You'll do your best on the dinner, won't you, Patience? I'll pretend I'm cooking it for my favorite movie hero. And after dinner, you'll just, uh, leave us? Oh, sure. You want me to burn any incense? No. No, I don't think so. No, George has hay fever. If it's for free, he's got it. Well, I've got to finish dressing. Oh, Patience, what can I wear to make him really notice me? How about a corsage of baked potatoes? Oh. Oh, he is nice, isn't he? Hungry, but nice. And tonight might even be the night that, you know... I know, I know. Tonight might be the night. I hope the piano's in tune. The man who plays the sax would never notice. It's so nice to have a man around the house. It's so nice to have a man around the house someone who is glad he found you who will put his arms around you I'm giving two to one nothing happens tonight nothing Harvey. Good evening, Patience. Ah, more beautiful with each passing hour. It's my perfume. Amour Hollandaise. Turn me aside with a jest, Patience, but the flame still burns on. You'll find a glass of water in the kitchen if it gets too hot. Hey, something happened to you. Nothing, nothing at all. Oh, sure, sure. Well, have a chair, gorgeous George. Miss Armstrong will be descending the grand staircase momentarily. <sighs> Comfortable chair. Pleasant house. Can't beat the cooking, either. Hope my jaw is not too sore to enjoy it. George? Hmm? What patient should have told me? I had no idea you were here. George, what's happened to you? I brought it on myself. But I only left it's you... It's nothing, Susan, nothing. Susan, uh, you didn't dress just for me. Dress? Oh, this? Oh, it's just an old thing of mine. Well, it <laughs> certainly does things for you. Or vice versa, whichever the case may be. Thank you. And sorry now I didn't put on my other tie. <laughs> Sit down, George. Huh? 
Oh, I didn't realize I was standing. A tribute to your dress. Uh, you're gallant. You know, Susan, it always surprises me to see you when you're outside of the office. You look like a different person. Oh, thanks very much. Uh, I didn't exactly mean it the way it sounded. I, I just meant that, well, women in business, you know... Uh... Our places in the home. No, 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 not that, not that at all. It, uh, in fact, I can't imagine you in a home. Uh, uh, I mean... Uh, yes, Well, you... what I mean is you... Well, where's my hat? I'll go quietly. Oh, just don't talk so much, George. Well, look, the piano. I haven't played in ages. Do you mind? No, no, no. Won't bother me at all. I mean, I mean I, I'd love it. I'd love it. Will you help me move this bench, George? Oh, certainly. Yeah, that all right? Uh, you know, Susan, I was just noticing the candlelight. It uh, does something to you. Oh, what? Uh, it makes you look, uh, I don't know, I'm changed. Does it? Susan, we shouldn't argue all the time. Like that thing today. I, I, I shouldn't have blown up the way I did it. It was foolish. Oh, it's all right, George. What do we care if some crook peddles a few shares of phony oil stock here in town? Hillsdale hasn't been taken for a long time. I am sure, George, that the development of the new Hillsdale oil field will do a lot for our city. Oh, sure. Hillsdale, the new Arabia. And why not? I have every faith that Mr. Gaston and his organization, and, and I know character... Character, character. You told me. Now, look, here's something you didn't know, Mr. Harvey. There's an heiress stopping at the General Grant Hotel, Miss Cecily Burnett, and she's here to try and buy up the entire stock issue. Freeze Hillsdale out. Well, it'll be the warmest winter we ever had. Oh, George, I'll be you the most exasperate. <sighs> Cigarette. Thank you. We shall not discuss Mr. Gaston further. Quite. Ah, the gall of that phony. He sent word that he was quite fascinated with you and would like you to call at the hotel tomorrow. Oh, it, well, uh, how interesting. Susan, you're not going. Well, why not? Why not? You think I'd let you alone with that fake moose? Well, I fail to see that you have a great amount of choice in the matter. Oh, you do? Well, if you're going, then I'm going with you. There seems to be more than the usual confusion in your mind, George. You are a reporter on my paper, not my guardian. Well, right now, you what you need is a guardian. A dinner, Quite right yes, amount sir. of jealousy rearing its tousled head. Oh, sure. Just because I can smell a crook a mile off, it's jealousy. Well, if you can smell a crook as well as you can scent food, well, I might be impressed. Personalities. But... All right, if we're down to personalities, how dinner about that? Dinner is served. What? Dinner. Oh, oh. My arm, Miss Armstrong? I can manage quite nicely, Mr. Harvey. Somehow, I doubt very much that tonight is the night. suppose we get back to our two stars, Irene Dunn and Fred McMurray, in the second act of our story. Let's see now. Irene, uh, oh, sorry. I mean, Susan is just about to go down. Good morning, patients. Good morning, Miss Armstrong. Your breakfast is ready. Thank you. I take it that last night was not exactly an evening with Valentino. Your assumption is correct, patients. Too bad. Uh, here now, uh, just take this chair, Miss Armstrong, where I can look at you. Like to look a person right smack in the eye, ma'am. Can tell what sort they are in a minute. Well, I always think so, too. Nothing shifty-eyed about you, ma'am. 
if you'll excuse the liberty. Well, thank you, Mr. Gaston. And you and I, Miss Armstrong, we can do a lot for this city of yours. Civic betterment. The greatest good for the greatest number. Exactly. Did you know, ma'am, that a young lady of great wealth is right here in this same hotel trying to buy up my entire issue of stock before the public gets a chance at it? Well, you're not going to sell. Well, I haven't met the lady yet. Miss Burnett of the Eastern Steamship Burnetts, I believe. Uh-huh. But I would much rather give the honest folks of Hillsdale a chance to cash in on the rich natural resources of their little community. Well, I think that's a fine sentiment, Mr. Gaston. Why, thank you, Miss Susan. And if you'll permit me to say so, I... Lover! Why, George! I, uh, I hear you got a leaky pipe, Mr. Gaston. Before you come busting in here, son, knock. No, I'm sorry, but uh, don't let me interrupt anything. I'll just go quietly on with my work. You were saying, Mr. Gaston? Why, uh, well, where was... Uh, oh, oh, yes. If you'll permit me to say so, Miss Susan, the good opinion of a fine woman like yourself means more to me than, than any... What? Uh, the good opinion of a fine woman like you means more to me... I can't hear you! I said the good... Uh, well... I found the trouble. Good. Then you're leaving. No, no, no. I have to rip out a section of the wall here. Uh, Miss Susan, uh, may we continue this conversation over dinner? Where are you eating? Will you call me, Mr. Gaston? Oh, my pleasure, ma'am. Goodbye now. Until tonight. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll be back. I, I forgot my pickaxe. George Harvey, if all the low, underhanded, sneaky... Treacherous? Yes. Susan, if you can't see through this whole swindle by you yourself... You will allow I... me to make my own judgments, Mr. Harvey. I know character. I know, Susan. Susan, this, this oil scheme is a fake. Uh... What's more, I think this so-called heiress here in the hotel is Cecily Burnett is a fake, too. And I'm going to interview her and prove it. Oh, you are. Oh, you just love that. Purely business, Susan. Oh, you're so right, Mr. Harvey. And I'm going to be around to see that it stays purely business. <laughs> Well, Miss Burnett? Yes? I, uh, I represent the Hillsdale Morning Star, Miss Burnett, and... But uh, how clever of you. I'll take one. No, no, no. No, you see, Miss Burnett, I'm a reporter. Well, of course you are. Come in, sit down, report. Thank you. Uh, no, right here, by me. Oh. Now... Well, uh, just a few questions about your business in Hillsdale, Miss Burnett. You see... Uh... Oh, you want to interview me? You sweet thing, you. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> you see, there's an oil promotion scheme underway here in town, Miss Burnett, and I... Brown eyes. Hmm? Oh. Well, you see, I have reason to believe this Gaston isn't what he presumes to be, and... Uh... Six two? No, no. Six three? three. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> uh, but if you're really considering putting money into this thing, Miss Burnett, well, uh... I just don't think it would be very wise. Excuse, please. Three o'clock snack. Susan. Can I see the General Grant Hotel? I'll put it on the end table. Now then, uh, as I was saying... Oh, how do you know I like wavy hair? Uh, you want it over here? Yes, and please hurry. Now then, golden boy. Your name is... Uh... George. George Hunter. Oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. Will you please get out of here? I'm sorry, George. I didn't catch your last name. It's... Don't. What did you say? Oh, I said I, I hope everything's all right. Well, it's not all right. Now, you please get out of here and get out fast. Oh, certainly, ma'am. <sighs> now, where were we? Golden boy? Golden boy. Oh, brother. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, George. 
Now I know what you want. You want to save me millions of dollars, and you want to tell me all about it tonight over dinner. Right? Uh, roughly, yes. Oh, you do sweep a girl off her feet, Georgie. What time is dinner? Oh, uh, nine-ish? Mm, you speak the language. So I get around. But not around me, you reporter. <laughs> <laughs> until tonight, Cecily. Huh? Oh, until tonight. Au revoir, Georgie. Huh? Oh, oh uh, au revoir, Cecily. Oh, these Frenchmen. Irresistible. Well, Charles Coming in there as a waitress. Oh, really? Susan, of all the George, low conniving... an heiress. If she's an heiress, I'm Pocahontas. If you were any judge of character, Pokey, you'd know that this girl is in danger of being the innocent victim of that swindler you were so eager to make a dinner date with. I was eager? Well, I didn't notice any long pauses in the conversation while you were making a date with her. We will not discuss conversations overheard through keyholes. Banging into a room as a plumber. I suppose that's recommended by Emily Post. Now, you listen, Susan. Now, you listen to me, George. After all, where you go tonight is not of the slightest concern to me. Likewise, I'm sure. Au revoir, Mr. Harvey. Au revoir, Miss Armstrong. Uh, good evening, Monsieur Harvey and Madam. Oh, uh, bonjour, Charles. Uh, table for two, huh? If you will follow me, please. Oh, what a delightful little bistro, Georgie. Sort of a subway with music. It is a little crowded, Cecily. Monsieur Harvey, your table. Susan. George. Oh, how nice that we should have adjoining tables. Adjoining? They're practically overlapping. Mr. Gaston, you remember Mr. Harvey, the plumber. Mm. Pleasure to see you again, sir. And uh, Miss Burnett, Miss Armstrong, uh, a waitress. How do you do? How do you do? And uh, Mr. Gaston, Miss Burnett. Real pleasure, Miss Burnett, ma'am. Why did you have to come here? Quite pleasure, Mr. Gaston. And entirely unexpected, I'm sure. Well, shall we sit down, Cecily? Yes, of course. Just bring me a shoehorn, Georgie, and I think I can make it. <laughs> there. No trouble at all, was it? Oh, pardon me, George. My salad. I know you don't like garlic, so if you'll just wring out your sleeve. Oh, sorry. Is that better? Uh, Mr. Harvey, sir, as long as you've got your elbow in my butter, would you mind just running your arm over my corn on the cob? I certainly would. Ignore them, Georgie. I'm sure they had a lot to talk about before we came. Well... Yes, we did have a lot to talk about, didn't we, Carter? Carter? Uh... <clears throat> I'm sure George wants to tell Cecily all about the plumbing business, and you were explaining oil to me. Well, yeah, I bet he was. Oh, we don't have to talk, Miss Susan, when I can feel your little hand in mine under the oh, but table. Mr. Gaston, my hand is my hand, the... you cheap double crossing chiseler. Oh, Cecily, you. Out on a business engagement tonight, you told me. Why, Get you. Sit I... down, dear. Oh. You're an heiress. Yes, and I'm just about to become a widow, too. Oh. Let me out of George. Oh, George, yes, George, let her out of Now, take it easy, Cecily. Hey, you got trouble, Mr. Gaston? Glad you come in, Rocky. We're blowing town. My wife, the heiress, just opened her big, rich mouth. Come on, Mrs. You Vanderbilt. Let get away, George. Oh, I'll stop them, Susan. Stay here, Rocky. If the demon reporter here gets noisy, keep him quiet. Come on, Cecily. Well, I can handle him, boss. Hey, sit down there, fire eater. Sit down, nothing. This time, you muscle-bound clown, I'm going to... Susan, look out! You take your hands off my George, you... Hey! The little lady hit me! And so did I! Oh, George! You were so masterful. Oh, you can't fool around forever with George Harvey, Susan. Oh, of course, you don't... helped a little. George, you you did it. Well, you... have it your way, Susan. We won't argue. Oh, Mr. Harvey, what has happened? Well, only two for dinner, Charles. The other couple won't be staying. <laughs> <laughs> 
stars, Irene Dunn and Fred McMurray will be back in a moment. George. Yes, Susan? Finished your story? Just about. I had a call from police headquarters that they couldn't hold Gasson and his wife. They actually hadn't sold any stock yet. George. You don't actually think I was taken in by him, do you? Do you? Susan, you don't actually think that I was taken in even for a minute by his wife, the phony heiress, do you? (laughs) Well, I don't if you don't, George. If you know what I mean. I think I know what you mean. After all, Susan, we both Both know character. character. Irene Dunn and Fred McMurray will be back next week in another exciting comedy adventure in the gay new series, Bright Star. This is Harry Von Zell inviting you to join us then. The comedy Bright Star with Fred McMurray and Irene Dunn from the fall of 1952 And from the big broadcast, I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington in HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. One of the greatest tales of the lure of gold and its consequences is the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Ironically, this quintessentially North American story about three Yanks in Mexico first appeared as a novel in Germany in 1927. Two decades later, the masterful John Huston made it into a screenplay and directed it as a movie, and he won Academy Awards for both jobs. In the role of the old prospector, Howard, he cast his father, Walter Huston, who also won an Oscar for his work. We're going to hear the elder Mr. Houston repeat that role now, and his vocal characterization is pitch-perfect and unmistakable. Speaking of unmistakable, recreating his film role as Fred C. Dobbs is Humphrey Bogart, and a fine radio actor, Frank Lovejoy, whom we often hear as Randy Stone in Nightbeat, portrays the character Bob Curtin, created on the screen by Tim Holt. From CBS, April 18th, 1949, it's the radio adaptation of The Treasure of the Sierra Madre from the Lux Radio Theater. Lux presents Hollywood. Lever Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Flakes, bring you the Lux Radio Theater. Starring Humphrey Bogart and Walter Houston in The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. William Keeley. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight's play is an exciting, dramatic story of a man's greed for gold. It was one of the really fine motion pictures of recent years. The Warner Brothers hit... The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And tonight we present the original stars of the film, Humphrey Bogart and Walter Houston, the latter in the role that won him an Academy Award. 
Our stars are on stage, and here's the curtain for The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, starring Humphrey Bogart as Dobbs and Walter Houston as Howard. First time to come up with it was in Tampico, that's a seaport town. Tampico, northeast Mexico. I was having a beer near the docks when they came in. Hot Sunday afternoon. You a fellow American? Yeah, that's right, mister. <laughs> what do you want? I want to know about a guy named McCormick. You ever hear of him? McCormick? McCormick. Oh, yeah, yeah, in the oil business. That's right, oil. Have you seen him lately? Where can we find him? Well, as you gentlemen, I'd run clear McCormick. Hires a crew to work in the oil field, see, then he never pays him off. <laughs> Slick. <laughs> Slick like oil. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I don't mean to tell me he's hooked two smart fellow Americans like you. <laughs> that's right, Pop. Six weeks in the oil fields, 120 in the shade. Only I ain't through with Mr. McCormick. Fred C. Dobbs is going to get his wages, see? Come on, Dobbs. Let's have a beer. <laughs> I could hear him talking at the bar. Drifters, both of them. Not what you'd call good friends, either. Just a couple of guys that happened to wind up in Tampico. Yeah, just like me. Only difference is they're young. <laughs> yeah, I see him again that night. They came wandering in the flop house. Fifty centavos for a bed. Me? I'm sitting up talking to a couple of sailors. The subject of the conversation is gold. Hey, Pop, you mean there's gold here in Mexico? <laughs> Not ten days from this very spot. Whole mountain of gold's waiting for the right guy to come along, discover a treasure, and then tickle her until she lets him have it. <laughs> Question is, are you the right guy? Tell me something. Why is gold worth some uh, 20 bucks an ounce? Mm, I don't know, Pop. Because it's scarce, I guess. A thousand men say go searching for gold. After six months, one of them's lucky. One out of a thousand. Now, his find represents not only his own labor, but that of 999 others to boot. That's, uh, that's 6,000 months or 500 years scrubbing over mountains, going hungry and thirsty. An ounce of gold, mister, is worth what it is because of the human labor that went in to find the getting of it. Yeah, never thought of it just like that. Well, there's no other explanation, mister. You start out, you tell yourself you'll be satisfied with 25,000 handsome smackers worth of it. <laughs> so help my lord and cross my heart. Fine resolution. After months of sweating yourself dizzy and grown short on provisions and finding nothing, you finally come down to 15000 and ten. Finally, you say, Lord, let me just find $5,000 worth and never ask for anything more the rest of my life. Yeah, $5,000 is still a lot of dough. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> yeah, here in this joint seems like a lot, but I tell you, if it was to make a real strike, you couldn't be dragged away. Not even the threat of miserable death could keep you from trying to add 10000 more. Get ten, you want twenty-five. Twenty-five, you want to get fifty. Fifty, a hundred. <laughs> like roulette. One more turn, you know, always one more. I wouldn't be that way with me. Oh, hello, mister. You didn't find McCormick, huh? I'll find him. But about gold, I swear it wouldn't be that way with me. I'd take only what I set out to get, even if there was still a half a million dollars lying around, just waiting to be picked up. I've dug for gold all over the world. I know what gold does to a man. You talk as if you once struck it rich. How about it, Pop? Yeah, what are you doing in here? A down and outer. That's the gold, mister. That's what it makes of us. Never knew prospector yet that died rich. Sure, I'm an odd old bone now, but say, don't you guys think the spirit's gone? I'm all set to shoulder a pick and shovel any time anybody's willing to share expenses. <laughs> I bet you are. I'd rather go by myself. Going alone's the best way. You've got to have a stomach for loneliness. On the other hand, going with a partner or two is dangerous. Murder's always lurking about. Partners accusing each other of all sorts of meanness. So why should finding gold make a man any different? If he's the right kind of a man to start with, gold ain't going to change him. You ever tried running her down, mister? Ever tried prospecting? No, no, I ain't. <laughs> you didn't have the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, I knew that answer. <laughs> you know it all, Pop. <laughs> well, I think I'll go to sleep and dream about piles of gold growing bigger 
bigger and bigger. A week later, I see him again, Dobbs and Curtin, all lumps and bloodied up. Looking for me, they were, something to tell me. Uh, they take me to a cantina and put a bottle of beer under my nose. And we found McCormick, Pop. Yeah, and the looks of you found a peck of trouble, too. Well, we got our wages, every last penny. Yeah, we've been thinking. Why not try digging gold for a change? Well, it ain't any riskier than waiting around here for a break. And this is the country where the nuggets of gold are just crying for you to take them out of the ground and make them shine on coins. Now, the fingers and necks are swell dang. <laughs> Well, that's what you said the other night, wasn't it? Yeah, what's so funny? Living out in the open is cheaper than living in town. Our money would last longer. Yeah, sure it would, sure. Only you have to have equipment. Ever think of that? How much that all cost? Well, we, uh, we figured we'd ask you. We ain't denying anything when you come right down to it. We don't know much, much about prospecting. Of course, if, uh, if you wasn't so old... Uh, maybe it, uh, maybe I'd go with you, huh? Is that what you're, what's on your mind? Uh, you want to take me along? Uh, would you go? <laughs> would I? <laughs> Say, what a question. Of course I'll go. Any time, any day, out for gold. Always at your service. Well, I got 200 American bucks ready cash. Last money I got in the world. How much do you guys got to put in? 150 bucks. Curtain here has the same. Total 500. Ain't hardly enough to buy the tools, weapons, and essential provisions. What do we need guns for? Well, for one thing, meat. For another thing, bandits. Bandit country's where we'll be gone. We ought to have uh, 600 bucks between us. Well, that much, huh? Can't dig up anymore, huh? Not a red cent. Senor! Senor Dobbs, I look all over for you. Give me my money, senor. Give me my money. Get away, Get away from me, will you? Senor, you don't comprehend. You'll comprehend a glass full of beer right in your kisser if you don't leave me alone. I tell you, I don't want any lottery tickets. Now beat it. Lottery tickets? <laughs> well, that's for gambling, man. <laughs> but always whoever wins a lucky number gives the seller a present of 10%. Hey, wait a minute. What are you talking about? Dobbs. He's trying to tell you he, he sold you the winning ticket. Here, look. The least of all the winning numbers. You buy ticket for five centavos, remember? Two, three weeks ago? Yeah, yeah, I remember. What about it? You win, senor. A 200 peso prize. Oh, give me that paper. Oh, just look at that fat, rich, printed number. You got the ticket? Sure, I got the ticket. Oh, 200 pesos. Welcome, sweet little smackaroos. Here, son, here's a present for you with my blessings. Go to the lottery office, senor. Get the money. Well, congratulations. Congratulations yourself. You stand a profit out of this the same as I do. How do you figure that? But did he just say we needed 600 bucks? Well, that's what we got now, ain't it? Yes, sir. Just like that. Stroke of fate. Fortunate circumstance. But how come you're putting up for me? Because this is an all-or-nothing proposition. We make a fine, we'll be lighting cigars with $100 bills. If we don't, the difference between what you put up and what I put up ain't enough to keep me from being right back where I was this afternoon. Polishing the park bench with the seat of my pants. Put her there, pardon. Thanks, Dobbs. Well, gentlemen, now here's what we do. We'll take a train to Perla. That's a little town at the foot of the Sierra Madre Mountains. And there, when we're there, we'll buy our burrs and get away from the railroad. No use looking for gold anywhere near a railroad. <laughs> you got to have, uh, well, we got to go where there's no trails at all. Just bend. Now, that sounds okay to me. Okay, partner? Sure, sure. Yeah. We got to go where no surveyor, anybody who knows anything about prospecting, has ever been there before. Well, ha! drink up, gentlemen. Drink up. We'll buy a map. Some railroad tickets. Bought about half our gear there in Tampica and then took the train for Perla. About 50 miles from Perla out in the desert, there's a big boulder on the tracks. Bandits trying to raid the train. Hey, they're 
retreating. Look, they're retreating. Look, they're riding off. Hey, save your bullets, Mr. Dobbs. You're too far off now. I got three of them. Credit me with three. How many did you get? A couple, I guess. Mm, bandits. Uh, guess they were expected. That's how come so many federal soldiers riding on this train. That bandit that rode right up to the train. The one with the gold hat. Yeah, I had my sights on him nice as you please. But the train gave a jolt and I missed him. I sure wish I could have got him. Well, you boys cooled off enough to look at this map? Huh? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, it ain't much of a map. Don't properly show whether it's mountain or desert. That shows the makers of the map themselves don't know for sure. That's good. <laughs> uh, what are you doing, Dobbs? Why, reloading. Can't tell if them bandits may come back. Yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, well, wake me up when the shooting starts. <laughs> Con una media luna arriba. Esto es lo mismo. Una con una media luna arriba, ma. Hey, Pop. What's he saying, the storekeeper? Well, he's proven he's got a right to sell us these burrs. They all got the same brand, see? Letter A. Elsewise, some native Indian might meet up with us and claim our burrs. I will load your supplies on the burro, senor. Oh, thanks, son. Thanks, yeah. My father is much worried for you, senor. Worried? What's he worried for? Yeah, we paid him, didn't we? Well, he says we're going into very wild country, jungles, and then high mountains, and tigers so big and strong, they can climb a tree with a burr in their mouth. Tigers? Here? Yeah, more like leopards, I guess. Well, I'm glad to hear such tall tales, gentlemen. That means mighty few outsiders have ever set foot there. Yeah, well, let's get going, then. Come on, kids, shake it up. We're in a hurry. Get them burrs loaded. <laughs> Hey, Curtin, take it easy. Now, this mountain climbing ain't like a walk around the block. I, I'm dead. Let's sit a while. Yeah. If there is gold in these mountains, how long would it have been here? Millions and millions of years, wouldn't it? Well, then what's our hurry? A couple of days, more or less, ain't gonna matter. Look at the old man, way ahead of us there. Yeah. You and me scared, we'd have to pack him on our backs. Yeah. That was when I took him for an ordinary human being. He's part goat. Let him climb, will you? If I'd have known what prospecting meant, I'd have stayed in Tampico and waited for another job to turn up. I couldn't. Couldn't. Look. Look. What's the matter? These rocks. Look. These little veins running through the rocks. Look at them glitter yellow, too, like... Like gold. Gold? We've been sitting on a gold mine. Get the water bag. Wash some of that dirt off. Hey, Howard, Howard, come back. We found something. Yeah? Yeah, we found something. Here, here's the water. There's a vein all over the rock. We've struck it, Curtin. Look over there. It's in all the rocks, just like he said, a bonanza. Howard, look. Look at these rocks. Oh, they're full of gold, veins of gold. Yeah, that's what you wanted to show me? Yeah. I saw it when I passed by. Gentlemen, this stuff wouldn't pay you dinner for a carload. It ain't gold? Pyrite, fool's gold. Oh, not there ain't plenty of the real stuff hereabouts. Walked over it four or five times already. You mean we've been passing it up? Why? Not enough of it. Not enough to pay us a good day's wages. Well, you figure to sit it out here all day? Come on, Kurt. Let's go. Next time you fellas strike it rich, holler for me before it starts splashing water around. Water's precious. Sometimes it'll be more precious than gold. Git, you burrow. Git, burrow. <laughs> that was a fine country, inspiring. 
Didn't see a soul, just the beast of the jungle and birds, all bright gay colors. Felt good ten years younger. Better man than either of them. Warm down to just plain gristle. Come out, well, they just lay on the ground, puffing and groaning, too dogged out to set up and eat their beans. I can't move. I just want to lie here. Yeah. Hey, ain't you guys going to eat some beans? You want some beans? Going through some mighty rough country tomorrow. You better have some beans. Oh, shut up, Pop. Go on, eat them up. Let us alone. How's your feet feel, Dobsy? <laughs> Bet you jump up like a jackrabbit was a pretty woman to stroll by. Bet your feet wouldn't bother you nothing then. That wind. It's blowing up awful cold. Getting cold, is it? Getting cold. Feels like a norther. Yeah. When they blow hard, they set that desert country up down there on its hind legs. We're lucky, lucky to be up here, all right. <laughs> lucky. Reckon there's only a couple more days of this heavy stuff. Pretty soon we'll be leveling off. Pretty soon now. Howard. Howard, come here. A couple of more days, you said. That was three nights ago. We've had enough, Howard. Dobbs and me, we want to give up. Give up, huh? Yeah. We've the whole outfit right here. Go back to civilization. <laughs> well, tell my whole grandmother. <laughs> Go back to civilization. I got two very fine, elegant bedfellows who kick at the first drop of rain and hide the closet when thunder rumbles. My, my, my. What great prospect. Now lay off us, Howard. Yeah. Two shoe clerks is what you are. Two shoe clerks reading the magazine about prospecting for the land, going to the land of the midnight sun. South the border, west of the Rockies. Get your truck. <laughs> Shut up, or I'll smash your head flat. Ah, go ahead. Pick up that rock and throw it. Go ahead. If you did, you'd never leave this wilderness alive. Without me, you two would die here more miserable than rats. Leave him alone, Jobs. <laughs> Can't you see the old man's nuts? Nuts? Nuts, am I? Let me tell you something, my two fine bedfellows. You're so dumb, there's nothing to compare you with. You're dumber than the dumbest jackass. <laughs> Look at you. Look at you. Did you ever see anything you like those for being dumb specimens? <laughs> You're so dumb, you don't even see the riches you're treading on with your own feet. <laughs> Look at me. I'm dancing on a... I'm doing a dance on a mountain of gold. <laughs> what are you talking about? This is it? There's gold uh, here? Uh, 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 what'd you expect to see? Nuggets of molten gold? Shorts here. Rich. Rich, too, but not rich enough for me. Yeah, and here ain't the place to dig. It comes from someplace further up. Up there. See? That's where we've got to go. Up there. Only I'm going alone. Because my two courageous companions have agreed between themselves to desert and go back. Well, go on. Get. I'll take one more day of it. What do you say, Kurt? One more day won't kill us. <laughs> Change your minds, huh? Thank you, my two fine friends. <laughs> You move me to tears with your faith and trust in me. One more day, huh? Then you can follow my trail. Because I'm going to be camping there tonight. This is it, Howard? This stuff right here? Yeah, this is it, all right. Gold. Sure don't look what I... Like I thought it would. It's just sand. That's just sand. Yeah, just like plain sand. It don't glitter. I thought it would glitter. Oh, it'll glitter when it's refined. But that's another guy's job. Yeah, you got to know how to recognize it. That ain't all. Not to find it, not by a long shot. You got to know how to tickle her so she'll come out. Yeah, it's mighty rich. 
This sand. It'll pay good. How good? Oh, about 20 ounces a ton. At some $20 an ounce. How many tons can we handle depends in a week? On, well, depends on how hard we work. Well, we'd better pitch our camp down the mountain a bit. Why do that when the gold is here? In case anybody happens by, bandits or soldiers chasing bandits or Indians, or a pretty woman out for a stroll. In that case, we'll tell them we're hunters. And uh, maybe we'll get away with it, maybe. Hunters? Wouldn't it be easier just to file a claim? Easier, maybe, but not so profitable. Wouldn't be no time for an emissary from one of those big mining companies to be right up here with a paper in his hand showing us we had no right to be here. Well... How does it feel, you fellas, to be men of property? I'm sorry about the fuss we kicked up, Pop. Guess we was pretty dumb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we made it, and we're here. Men of property, what do you know? <laughs> yeah, everything's going to be all right from now on, huh? <laughs> everything's going to be fine. Sure it is. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> well, we'll find out, won't we, Dobsey? Yeah, we'll find out. <laughs> Here's our producer, William Keeley. Act two of The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, starring Humphrey Bogart as Dobbs and Walter Houston as Howard. Oh, for a month we, we didn't mind a grain of ore. There were things to do first, setting up camp, corral for the birds, and sluice way off the creek to wash out the gold. Finally, the time come when we weighed our first take of the treasure. How much, Howard? How much you figure we got? Oh, about $5,000 worth, I reckon. That's not bad. When we, when do we start dividing it up? Why divide it now? When the time comes, we're all going back together. I'm for dividing as we go along. Make each guy responsible for his own goods. Well, I just soon have it that way. I haven't liked the responsibility of guarding your treasure any too well. Uh, who asked you to, Pop? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, you never asked me. Only I thought I was the most uh, trustworthy of the three. <laughs> you? How come? <laughs> I said trustworthy. <laughs> as far as being honest, well, no one can say. I don't get it. All right, suppose you were charged with taking care of the goods. One day I am deep in the brush and Curtin's on his way to the village to get provisions. That'd be your big chance to pack up and leave us in the cold. Only a guy that's a thief at heart would think me likely to pull a stunt like that. <laughs> well, right now it wouldn't be worth your while, but, uh, well, when the pile has grown, uh, yes, sir... Such, uh, well, think of such things you will Yeah, how about yourself? Oh, me? Well, I'm not picking the feet any longer <laughs> You fellas are a lot tougher than when we started out Yeah, you'd have me strung up in no time <laughs> That's why I think I'm the most trustworthy Well, looking at it that way, I guess you're right But let's do like Dobbs says, divide the proceeds every night Well, by me, gentlemen Then each one of us will have to hide his share of the treasure from the other two, huh? Well, why not? Having done so, he'll have to be forever on the watch to see that his hiding place is uh, not discovered. And what a dirty, filthy mind you got. <laughs> oh, no. No, not dirty, not dirty, baby. Only I know what kind of ideas even supposedly decent people get when gold's at stake. <laughs> All right, Curtin, hand me them weighing scales. Here she goes, boys, three ways. Venison stew. Sure tastes good, Pop. Where's Dobbs? He ate before. Alone? Yeah. Tell me something, Pop. 
What are you going to do with all your hard-earned money? Oh, I reckon I'll settle down some quiet place, get me a little business, hardware, grocery store, spend the better part of my time reading comic strips and adventure stories. <laughs> One thing's for sure. <laughs> I'm not going prospecting again. Well, what's all that about? Oh, we're just John and Dobbsy telling each other what we'll do when we get back. Me? I got it all figured. First off, I'm going to get a brand new set of duds, a dozen of everything. And I'm going to a swell cafe. Order everything on the bill affair, and if it ain't just right, and even if it is, I'm going to ball out the manager and make him take it all back. What's next on the program? Well, what would be? <laughs> uh, you know what? Uh, we ought to put up some kind of a limit on our take. Agree now that when we get so much, well, we'll just pull up stakes and beat it. What kind of a limit? Oh, say $25,000 worth for each man. 25000 Small potatoes, 50 anyway, 75 would be more like it. I'm young. I need dough and plenty of it. No use making hogs of ourselves. Hog, am I? Maybe you don't know it. I'd be within my rights if I demanded half again as much as you get. How come? Well, I put up the lion's share of the cash, didn't I? Well, so you did, Dobsey. I always meant to pay you back. In any civilized place, the biggest investor gets the biggest return, don't he? <laughs> That's one thing in favor of the wilds. Oh, not that I intended to demand it, but I, I'd be within my rights if I did. The next time you go calling me a hog, just remember what I could have done if I'd wanted to. <laughs> it's funny, ain't it, Pop? Yeah, real funny. <laughs> Catch me sleeping, huh? I'm not that dumb. Hey, them guys try to put anything over on me, it'll be a costly one for both of them. Any more lip bottom, and I'll, I'll let them have it. You know what's good for you? You, you don't monkey around with Fred C. Dobbs. What'd you say, Dobbs? Huh? Oh, uh, oh, nothing. You better look out. Bad sign when a guy starts talking to him. Yeah? Well, who else am I going to talk to? Certainly not to you or Curtin. And don't get the idea you two are putting anything over on me. I know what your game is. Well, you know more than I do. So why am I elected to go to the village tomorrow? Why me instead of you or Curtin? Time I'd be gone, give you plenty of chance to discover where I hid my goods, wouldn't it? <laughs> you got any fear along those lines? Why don't you take your goods with you? Well, and run the risk of having them taken from me by bandits? <laughs> They'd kill you anyway, Dobsey. Just for the sport of it. Ah, so that's it. You're hoping bandits will get me. That'd save you two a lot of trouble, wouldn't it? <laughs> All right, Dobbs. <laughs> Forget about it. Well, I ain't going to the village, see? You can go back and tell that to Curtin. <laughs> okay, partner. I'll tell him. <laughs> so Curtin went down to the village for provisions. He was all stirred up coming back. There were soldiers in the village chasing bandits. That wasn't all. He met up with an American, a fellow named Cody. And he kept pumping me, followed me into the store, wanted to know what I was doing here. What did you tell him? I said I was a hunter, a professional hunter. Kept asking me, did I see anything up here that looked like gold? Shook him off, Curtin? Got rid of him, huh? I couldn't. He followed me. You sure he trailed you? Yeah, I'm sure. What makes you so positive? Because every time... Because if you turn around, you can see for yourself. There he is. Hello. All right, you. Walk over here to the fire. I, uh, guess I'm not wanted, huh? I just couldn't resist the chance to sit around and jaw with an American. Now, don't make any mistake, mister. We got no use for you. We're full up. No vacancies. Go back where you came from. Take our blessing with you. Thanks. Hungry, mister? Go on, help yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. We don't want a guy to starve to death. 
Tonight you're our guest, see? But tomorrow morning, look out. No trespassing. Beware of the dogs, get it? I, uh... I got a few hides while you were gone, Curtin. Five foxes and a tiger. How are the skins? <laughs> Pretty good. Hey, excuse me for butting in. But there's no wild game around here worth going after. Yeah, you're right, mister. You're right. That's why I've made up our minds to clear out. Yet it might be pretty good ground for something else. I told you in the village there's no gold around here. My boy, if it'd been one single ounce of it, I'd have smelled it, believe me. Then you're not as smart as you appear to be. Gold, huh? <laughs> it gives me an idea. <laughs> Guess I'll sleep on it, gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, me too. See you in the morning, Cody. Sorry there's no room in our tent. If you want to, you can roll up here by the fire. Oh, that's fine. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I can't figure him out. Is he wise to us or not? Now you guys go to sleep. I'll be watchdog for a couple of hours, and then you and Dobbs can take your turns. You got a gun handy? Yeah, right here. Okay. Didn't get much sleep last night. Did you, friend? <laughs> That's fact. We didn't. Well, let's lay our cards on the table right now, huh? You found gold here. I know it. And because I know it, you'll have to do one of three things. Now, look who's telling us what we got to do. One of three things. Kill me, run me off, or take me in as a partner. Partner? Well, we... Now, let's consider the first. If you start killing people, just how far are you prepared to go with it? Another guy may come along tomorrow. Not much we'd stop at, mister, to protect our interests. I only say that killing me isn't the answer. As for choice number two, you run me off and I might very well inform on you. 25% of your gold is a reward I'd get. It's a pretty strong argument in favor of killing you. Yeah, I don't deny it. But take me in as a partner and you don't lose anything. I'm not asking for a share of what you've made so far, only in the profits to come. Think it over. I'll be looking after my borrowed. Well, Howard? Yeah. Send them away is out of the question. Uh, Fred C. Dobbs ain't a guy likes being taken advantage of. We got no real choice at all. Bump them off. Mm. What, what do we gain by... What do we gain by killing them? I don't mind being taken some advantage of as long as there ain't no money out of my pocket. And whoever else happens along, they to be invited in too. Come one, come all, huh? Uh, you got a point there, Dobbsy. No question about that. But, uh... But to kill a man. What's the matter? Ain't you up to sure, it? Sure, sure I'm up to it. Let the majority decide. What do you say, Curtin? For or against? Well, for or against? For. Okay. We'll make it short and sweet for him. Stand right where you are, Cody. Guns, huh? Gonna shoot me, huh? Yeah. You convinced us. Uh, before you start shooting, you better take a look down there in the valley. There's some men coming on horses. Oh, so that's your stinking game. I knew you was an informer. I knew it all the time. Uh, you're wrong, brother. This means all our funerals. Yeah. <clears throat> They're bandits, gentlemen. About a dozen of them. Someone at the village must have told them about the American hunter up here. Well, we better start thinking of a way to defend ourselves. We could try hiding the rocks, but then we'd lose the birds and the whole outfit. No, the best thing for us is to make a fight of it. Is it you three against them, or us four? Well, now I guess it's us four. Yeah. We'll settle your case later. If you're alive. <laughs> He's got something there, Dobbsy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> if we're alive. <laughs> hey, 
Ben has turned out to be Gold Hat and his boys. Same crowd that held the train on uh, on the way up to Perla. They spotted us, all right, and started pouring it on us. And all at once, they turned and took off. Didn't make sense. When we saw why, far down the mountain, hot on their trail, was maybe 50 soldiers, federales. We just stood there watching them shoot it out, half a mile below us. Look at them federales. Sick them tight, chew them up and swallow them. Oh, boy, am I happy. Ought to tell you the truth, I was already eating dirt. Now, you better stay covered, Dobsey. If them soldiers start spreading out, we may have company after all. Yeah, yeah. Get down, Curtin. Come here, you guys. Looks like the bandits settled our problem. Cody's dead. What do you mean, he's dead? Take a look. Bullet. Right through his neck. Yeah. I wonder who he was. Maybe better go through his pockets. Maybe he's got folks somewhere. Here's his wallet, Pop. James Cody, Dallas, Texas. Yeah, and a picture. A girl, a little kid. Hmm. Guess she's his wife, huh? Oh, it's not bad. Well, I guess we better dig a hole for him. Funny how it's all worked out. We didn't have to shoot him after all. Gentlemen, if you'd ask me, I, I'd say it's about time we considered leaving this mountain. How much gold do you figure we got? Upwards of 35000 apiece, and I'll tell you what, we ought to be plenty thankful. Well, let's call it quits, then. The sooner the better. Take another week to put the mountain back in shape. Do what to the mountain? We've wounded this mountain. It's our duty to close our wounds. It's the least we can do for all the wealth she's given us. If you guys don't want to help me, then I'll do it alone. You talk about a mountain like it was a real woman. <laughs> You've been a lot better to me than any woman I ever knew. Give your shirt on, old-timer. Sure, I'll help you. Six days later, we loaded the gold on the burrs and little canvas bags and started down. Late that afternoon, pushing through the brush, we walked straight into a bunch of Indians. I don't know where they come. Peaceful, all right, friendly, but they uh, wanted help. What do you mean, help? What kind of help? They've been heading for Durango. Seems like a little boy in their village fell into the river. They fished him out, but he won't come to. He ain't dead, but they say he just won't come to. Well, that's tough. Well, they want me to go back to the village with them. Ain't far. Maybe I can do something. Why? Was I to refuse them? They'd make me go. I'll be back soon, before morning, probably. And have you not? I'm leaving my burrs with you. Look after my goods till I get back. It's okay, Pop. We'll wait for you here. It's no use arguing. Sorry, gentlemen, I... I gotta go, go back, go back again to the village. Yeah, but you just said you fixed the kid. You said he was cured. Yeah, fixing the kid was simple. Artificial respiration, a few boy scout tricks. But they say I gotta visit them with, well, I gotta go with them. Their gods will be angry if they don't show their gratitude oh, to me. Tell them to forget it. They don't owe us a thing. Uh, I tried, just made them mad. Well, that's them over there waiting for me. I'll handle this. Avi hombre, no puta quedar. No, no. Now, wait a minute. Don't, don't you touch your gun. Don't touch your gun or we'll be scalped in half an hour. Now, what's he saying now? Well, he says it makes no difference about you guys, but I've got to go back with him. Oh. Oh, it's like that, huh? Yeah. They just want you. Looks like it. Well, go on, then. We'll meet in Durango. Well, uh, well what about my goods? Take them with you. Ah, if they found out, they might forget he was their honored guest and bump him off, huh, Pop? Well, what'll I do? Dump him out here on the ground? We'll take him with us if you want us to. 
Well? <laughs> Any better ideas, Pop? I reckon that's about the only solution. I'll bet you remember this the next time you try to do a good deed. Don't worry, Pop. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be lonesome without you, Pop. Look out for those Indian dames. One of them squaws might marry you. Yeah. Maybe I'll do just that. Pick me out a good-looking squaw and marry her. They're easy to dress and feed and entertain. Well, so long, partners. See you in Durango. So I left them and went back to the Indians. No choice. I had to go. Behind me, in the keeping of Curtin and Dobbs, was my share of the treasure. $35,000. I knew they'd have a time of it. Just as hard going down them mountains was going up. I'm stopping here for the night. You hear me, Curtin? I'm stopping here. It's early yet. We can make four or five miles before dark. Well, go on, then. Take his burros with you. Ain't my responsibility. Since when? Give us nothing but trouble for two days. Straying off trails, smashing their packs against the rocks. He knew what he was doing when he turned them over to us. Mighty cute of him, wasn't it? So you're staying here for the night, huh? Yeah, you heard me. Well, if you can't go any further... Who says I can't? They don't make me laugh. I go four times as far as a mug like you, but I don't want to. I could if I want to. I want to, but I don't want to. See, mug? What's the use of hollering, Dobbsy? Okay, we'll camp here. How far do you suppose the railroad is from here? Well, it's hard to say. We'll reach the high pass in two days more and get fresh water. After that, I don't know. <laughs> What's a joke, Dobby? <laughs> uh, I was just thinking what a bonehead play that old jackass made when he put all his goods in our keeping. Figured he'd let us do his sweating for him, did he? Well, we'll show him. We'll show him what? Can't you see it's all ours now? We don't go back to Durango at all. Nowhere near Durango. Steal his goods? Ah, where'd you ever grow up? Sure. Take his goods and go north. Leave the old jackass flat. Now, look, you don't really mean that. Fred C. Dobbs don't say nothing he don't mean. As long as I can do anything about it, you won't take a single grain of the old man's goods. Ah. Well, you want to take it all for yourself and cut me out. Well, you're out of your head. I'm on the level with the old man, same as I'd be with you. Oh, sure. For a long time, I've had my suspicions about you, and now I know I've been right. What suspicions? Bump me off. Bury me out here in the brush like a dog. Oh, you are crazy, Dobbs. You're right. And you'd have not only the old man's good, but mine in the bargain. You'd have yourself a big laugh, wouldn't you? Thinking how dumb the old man and I were. Put your hands up, Curtin. Go on, put your hands up. Dobbs. Was I right or was I right? Go on, stand up. Get on your feet and take it like a man. Trying to put one over on Fred C. Dobbs. I... Pull a gun on me, huh? Pull a gun on me. Only now I got the gun and you listen to me. Go on. Pull the trigger. Oh, Dobbsy, look, you're all wrong. I never intended to rob you. You really mean that? Then give me back my gun. Look, wouldn't it be better the way things are to split up? I mean now, tonight. Yeah. Yeah, that would suit you fine, wouldn't it? So you could fall on me but from behind. Shoot me in the back. All right, then. 
I'll go first. Yeah, wait for me on the trail. Ambush me. If I meant to kill you, why wouldn't I do it here? Because you're yellow. You're yellow. You haven't got the nerve to pull the trigger when I'm looking you straight in the eye. You really believe that, don't you? Jokes. Full of jokes. Well, then we won't separate. We'll go on together. And every day you'll take the trail right ahead of me, and every night I'll tie you up. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Kurt. I'll make you a little bet. Three times 35 is 105. I'll bet you $105,000 you go to sleep before I do. How long can you go without sleeping, Curtin? Two days? Three? Four? Whatever it is, I can go longer, see? And the day you fall down on the trail, that's the day that Fred C. Dobbs wins his bet. $105,000. <laughs> Just like I said, Curtin, you couldn't take it, could you? Fell asleep, didn't you? Who wins the bet? <laughs> Who wins the bet? The old man will catch up with you. He will. Oh, he will, will he? Well, I got an answer for that one, too. I'll tell him you tie, he tied me to a tree. That you stole all the good, yours, mine, and his. So he'll be looking for you, Curtin. Not for me. And a fat chance he's got of finding you. So long, partner. We return you to William Keeley. The curtain rises on the third act of The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, starring Humphrey Bogart as Dobbs and Walter Houston as Howard. Yeah, I left Dobbs and Curtin on the trail with all my goods and gone to the village of the Indians. <clears throat> yeah, they couldn't do enough for me. Food, drink, for little girls to brush flies off me. Yes, sir, old man Howard was a regular mogul. Real potentate. Then some of their hunters came in from the brush. They were carrying a man. Curtin, it was. Curtin, with two bullet holes in him. Dobbs did it, Howard. Dobbs. Yeah, made off of their goods, huh? How could he be such a bad shot? He left me there. He thought I was dead. Now, take it easy, son. Take it easy. You're talking too much. Don't worry about me. I'll pull out of this if only to get that guy. Well, I reckon I can't blame Dobbs too much. What do you mean? Well, Dobbs ain't a real killer as killers go. I think he's honest the next fellow, almost. Big mistake was leaving you two fellows alone in the wilderness. <laughs> Mighty big temptation, partner, believe me. Dobbs shot me down in cold blood. He shot me a second time just to make sure. A man goes crazy with that much wealth in his reach. Maybe if I'd have been young, been out there with either one of you, I might have been tempted too. Well, Curtin, <clears throat> nothing to do but set out after him. A couple of days, I'll be okay. Yeah, but not for chasing down a mountainside. The Indians, they could loan us horses. That's why I figure I'll catch Dobbs. He'd go as far and as fast as a man can, but alone, with them birds and on foot. I'm going with you. Give me ten days, two weeks, and I'll come back for you. I'm going with you. Look at you, you're weak as a newborn kitten. Don't worry, I'll look after our interests. I'm still going. Yeah, <laughs> I reckon you're gone. Some of the Indians came with me. Said they had to protect me. I tried to figure out what I'd do with I'm Dobbs's boots. I tried to make time. 
I'd sacrifice anything for time, sleep, rations, even water. Otro burrito muerto, señor. El tercero con la marca de la letra A. Howard, what are they found? Another dead burr. Dobbs is really driving. That's the third burr he's killed off. I don't like this wind. Dust blowing like this cover up his trail. Yeah, it might blow like this for days. Fills a man's lungs with dust. Burns him out like pure poison. We're not going to stop, are we? Dobbs won't stop. Uh, we'll keep going. We, he'd be running out of water soon. We were going to fill up at the high pass. Yeah. When he went north, my friends say there's water's mighty scarce in the north. They say something else, too, Curtin. Yeah? Yeah. Gold Hat and a couple of his pals escaped the federales. They're on foot. They passed here just a day before Dobbs. There he is, amigo, see? At the mud hole. One man and six burros trying to squeeze water out of the mud hole. Aye, six burros. Shoes he wears, see? Shoes. I see the three of us have a little fun, huh? Jewelry too, maybe, huh? Come on, we say hello to our friend. Water. Water. I made it. I made it. Town can be far off now. A road. That's a road over there. Just one more day and... Wait, amigo. What? What do you want? Senor, we are three poor men in rugs. Cigarettes? You have cigarettes, maybe? No, I... No, I haven't. I... I got a little tobacco, so that'll do. He's got a little tobacco. No paper to roll it in? Paper? Yeah. Yeah, here. Going into Perla, amigo? Yeah. Yeah, I, uh... I gotta show my burrows. I gotta get some money. Matches. Or cigarette. Uh, matches, yeah. Here. Your handshakes, amigo. You sick, maybe? Sick? No, I... No, I, I ran out of water. I'm all right now, I... I could use a good burro driver, maybe, maybe two or three. <laughs> burro drivers, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll, uh, I'll pay when we get to town. I'm a, I'm a hunter. See all those hides? Hey, did I know you from someplace? Maybe I know you, huh? No. No, I don't think so. You are all alone, a poor, lonely man? No, 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 I, I'm not alone, I... I got a couple of friends coming along. They, uh, yeah, they ought to be here any minute. Let me look at your face. Ah, uh, sure, sure, I know I've seen you before. Up in the mountains. The guy in the rocks before the federalists chase us. Oh, crazy. i never seen you till now. You don't remember me? Me with the yellow sombrero, the gold hat? But then you tell a lie. No, no, so I... So you have a lot of hides on the burros, huh? Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I'm a hunter. Oh, ought to bring lots of money, huh? All these hides. Hey, get away from them. Get away from them hides. Well, we can sell these burros, too. Hey, watch these. The little cloth bags filled with something. Hey, give me a knife. I think I look in the little bag. You touch those bags and I'll kill you. Hey, it's some kind of joke. Nothing in this bag, only sand, dirt. All the little bags got only sand. Get out of here. Clear out before I... A pistol, I... huh? 
For you can't even frighten a sick louse with that. You can only shoot one of us before the other two jump on you. And that one wouldn't mind too much because the Federales are after him anyway. Stand back there, stand... <laughs> hey, with the rock! I hit him with the rock! His shoes! I'm gonna get his shoes! Finish him off. Come on, finish him. How you feeling, Curtin? I'm all right. Town is over the hill there, Perla. We're almost there. But will Dobbs be there? Uh, yes, sir. That's the question, all right. Uh, shooting. Yeah. Kind of like a volley. Sounds seem to come from the town. Gee, Federales. Uh, execution, probably. Well, we'll know about it pretty soon now. We guess it all right, Curtin. Execution. Three bandits. Storekeeper here says that one of them was Gold Hat. They finally got him. Yes, mm, no es todo, señor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says uh, that's not all. Look, we better keep after Dobbs. Yo tengo malas noticias, señor. Su compañero. Uh, bueno, amigo. Su compañero fue matado a sangre fría por los tres banditos. He's dead, Curtin. Dobbs is dead. Dead? Yeah, those bandits. But our goods. What does he say about our goods? Donde están uh, nuestras uh, cosas? Aquí, aquí, señor. Yo tengo todo aquí, incluyendo los burritos. Están detrás de la tienda. Uh, he says he's got everything. This way, Curtin, the back of the store. It's not here, Howard. The gold's gone. Everything else is here but the gold. Keep your shirt on. Señor. ¿Qué pasa, señor? ¿Sabe algo sobre unas costelitas uh, muy posadas? No, señor, no. De eso no son nada. Well, says everything the bandits had is right here. Señor... You asked my father about some little Thomas bags? Yeah, yeah, where are they? Costalitos, my diable, hijo. Un momento, papa. I do not know where the bags are, senor, but I heard the bonnets talking in the jail. They said the senor whom they killed had Thomas bags with sand in them. Many, many bags on the burros. Well, where are they? Where did they kill the American? At the water hole by the ruined wall, outside the town. Can you take us there? Oh, yes, senor, right away. There's another one, Howard. Empty. The bags are all empty. They're cut open and empty. Keep looking. Keep looking. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're all... Yeah, they're empty, all right. Uh, another couple of hours in this wind and we wouldn't even find the bags. Swept away and buried under the dust of the earth. But what happened? Bandits. Them miserable, stupid, ignorant bandits. Stole Dobbs' shoes, took the shirt off his back and... Threw away $105,000 worth of gold because they thought it was sand. Well, then it must be here on the ground somewhere. Here. Here. Here in this wind. Ha! Ha, 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 
this joke is. Look at the Indians. They're laughing too, only they don't know what they're laughing at. That's our own private joke, Curtin, old boy. <laughs> well, well, Howard, what next, I wonder? Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'm all fixed. I'll go back with the Indians, be a medicine man. Three meals a day, five I want them, roof over my head and a drink every now and then to warm me up. I'll be worshipped and fed and treated like a high priest for telling people things they want to hear. Good medicine men are born, not made. <laughs> Come and see me sometime, my boy. You'll take your hat off when you see how respected I am. Yeah, I'm all fixed up for the rest of my natural life. How about yourself? What are you aiming to do? I haven't got any idea. Ah, you're young yet. Got plenty of time to make three or four fortunes for yourself. You know, I'm really no worse off than I was back in Tampico. I'm out a couple of hundred bucks when you come right down to it. Not very much compared to what Dobbsy lost. Any special place you're bent on going? No. All places are the same to me. Tell you what. You keep my share of what the burrs and the hides will bring, and if you use the money to buy a ticket to Dallas, she Cody's widow. Better than writing. Tell her what happened. Okay, Pop. I'll go to Dallas. Hey, you, son. Come here. Yes, senor. Tell your father to give this man all the hides and birds. They're all his now. I'm going off with the Indians. Yes, senor. I will tell him. Well, I guess I'll round up my heathen brethren and we'll be on our way. Bye, Curtin. Bye, Howard. Good luck. Same to you. Here's Mr. Keeley with our stars. For drama that rates the applause of this audience, our thanks go to this evening's stars. And here they are, Humphrey Bogart and Walter Houston. Thank you, Bill. You know, there's not much glamour available for this curtain call. Uh, don't look at me, Bogey. That's your department. <laughs> all, the, all the glamour in my family is home looking after the baby, Walter. <laughs> well, we'll settle for a man that's just won an Academy Award. Walter, it must have been a double thrill to win your Oscar the same night your son John won his for direction and the screenplay of the same picture. Yes, I was very proud of that moment, Bill. You see, a long time ago, I told my son that if he ever became a director, to please find a good part for his old man. <laughs> I'm going to speak the same lines to uh, my son, Stephen, tonight. In another 30 years, maybe he'll do the same for me. <laughs> well, you know, to help things along, we've got a supply of Lux Flakes over there in the wings. You can take it home to him. <laughs> Thanks very much, Bill. He's the, he's the boy that can use it. Well, good night, Bill. Good night. Good night. And that applause says it all. Lever Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Flakes, join me in inviting you to be with us again next Monday evening when the Lux Radio Theater presents Betty Grable and Dan Daly 
in When My Baby Smiles at Me. This is William Keeley saying goodnight to you from Hollywood. Humphrey Bogart is currently starring in his own Santana production, Knock on Any Door. Heard in tonight's cast were Frank Lovejoy as Curtin, Gerald Moore as Cody, Don Diamond as Gold Hat, and Bill Johnstone, Jimmy Ogg, Jack Petruzzi, Charles Latour, Jack Crucian, Jay Novello, Eddie Marr, and Johnny McGovern. Our play was adapted by S.H. Barnett, and our music was directed by Louis Silvers. This is your announcer, John Milton Kennedy, reminding you to join us again next Monday night to hear When My Baby Smiles at Me, starring Betty Grable and Dan Daly. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The Lux Radio Theater production of The Treasure of the Sierra Madre from the spring of 1949. It brings us almost to the end of this gilded edition of the big broadcast. We can't leave without noting that today would have been the 101st birthday of a true radio superstar, first on WLIB in New York City and later on National Public Radio. In fact, he was one of the pioneers who put that service on the map. Hosting the series Jazz Alive in the 1970s, the first of many shows he did for NPR. We're going to close with a performance from his very first recording session as a leader, March 20th, 1945. With the bassist Al Hall and the drummer Jimmy Crawford, it's Dr. Billy Taylor playing his own composition, Solace. For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineers Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody.